0: Today, May 40 here. Happy Martin Luther King Day. It however, I'm January 17th in Australia right now. It is 5.05 a.m. in Sydney, Australia. But in the United States, it's a particularly holy day. It is Martin Luther King Day. And it's just hilarious, the reverence with which the mainstream news media greets this new statue of uh, Martin Luther King, where it looks like his wife is cradling his, his flaccid penis. Well, oh, at least it doesn't depict him participating in a, in an orgy, so. Here's how the mainstream media. Head to Martin traces. Luther
1: King
2: Day tomorrow. We go to Boston, which just unveiled a moving tribute to Dr. King, his family, and racial <laughs> equity in the form of a massive sculpture. ABC's Mona Kosar Abdi is here with the details. Good morning to you, Mona. Eva, good morning. Making this moment that much more special, the late Dr. Martin Luther King had many notable connections to Boston. He met his wife there, he preached there, and led a civil rights march right to that very spot where his sculpture now stands. This monument, like the iconic figure, making history. Nearly 60 years after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. addressed thousands at the Boston Common, the city unveiling a sculpture commemorating the Reverend and his wife Coretta Scott King. The 20-foot tall and 40-foot wide bronze monument is the largest in the U.S. dedicated to racial equity. Hank Willis Thomas is the artist behind the sculpture, affectionately titling it The Embrace.
3: He's hugging her, and you can see her literally holding him up, and this was something that was so special.
2: Thomas is known globally for his work honoring diverse historic figures.
3: I'm really excited to be highlighting this very important moment in 1964 when Dr. King was awarded the Nobel Prize because that was really a culmination of over a decade of incredibly hard work that not only dr king did but also mrs king
2: the famed king couple's love story began in boston he was a theology doctoral student at boston university while she was studying at the new england conservatory of music the 10 million dollar sculpture celebrating their life complements the 30 foot tall mlk memorial on the national mall Dr. King's 14-year-old granddaughter honoring her grandparents' legacy.
0: I also see the love and strength
4: and unity in these hands and how they symbolize a beautiful marriage and partnership. And it was one that...
5: Okay,
0: this is the guy who's constantly screwing around, having hojis.
3: ...changed the world.
2: A profound message. Thomas was chosen to design the sculpture after submitting a proposal to a competition back in 2017. He says the embrace not only acknowledges Dr. King and Coretta Scott, but is also something very universal. Good times, bad times, Gio. We all
0: need a hug. Oh, absolutely. What a beautiful sculpture. What a beautiful beautiful.
6: love story, huh?
0: Thank you for that, Mona. A beautiful what a beautiful
7: love it was a historic Saturday in Boston as the Embrace statue
8: honoring MLK and Coretta Scott was unveiled. The 20 ton statue stands at Boston Common where the Kings had their first date. The statue shows the intertwined arms of King Jr. and his wife, inspired by the photo of Dr. King smiling as he embraces his wife moments after winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. In addition to the Kings, the statue memorializes 65 names. Of other Boston leader.
0: Powerful, moving.
8: <laughs> Can you believe
0: that they they paid ten million dollars for this, and the news media like treats this reverently? That the New York Times has a long, reverent story about this, you know stunning and brave new, new statue. <laughs> Let's have a look at some of the other coverage. All right, so. Even some kin of Coretta Scott King hate the new $10 million sculpture just dedicated to her and her iconic civil rights leader husband in Boston. A cousin claims it looks like a penis. Mainstream media was reporting on it like it's all so beautiful because they were told to say that. Seneca Scott, Coretta Scott's cousin told the New York Post. But when it came out, little boy pointed out, that's a penis. And everyone was like, yeah, that's a big old dong, man. Said the 43-year-old Oakland, California resident. If you had showed that statue to anyone in the hood, they would have been like, absolutely not. $10 million were wasted to create a masturbatory metal homage to my legendary family members. So Seneca told the Post that woke culture allowed the expensive abstract experiment to come to fruition. <laughs> this is all says British rapper and podcaster, Zuby. It's doubly insulting to the black community. He spent $10 million on a bronze statue without a head on it. And the, the killer thing is that they treat it so reverently, right? I mean, they spent $10 million, right, on a statue for, for Martin Luther King of uh, some, you know, his wife supposedly handling his, his flaccid penis. Uh, this is what they spend ten million dollars on, and ABC News, New York Times, the mainstream media uh, treat it as though it, you know it's a beautiful, reverent thing. That uh, was going on. Why
7: it was overlooked? Most classified documents are within a folder that has a broad border, and and over the top are these these sort of all cap statement of the classification. It's hard to miss. I've worked with classified documents for thirty years. The only reason you would miss that is if it was taken out of its folder. And that would be a very serious thing here when they're arguing inadvertence. If someone took a classified document out of a folder, they clearly knew it was classified and that it was at these locations.
9: Really important stuff there and big questions yet to be answered. Jonathan Turley on all of that for us. Jonathan, thank you very much. Uh, TRACE, uh, IT SEEMS TO ONLY BE GROWING, THIS SCANDAL. Yeah. I THINK we, are, WE WERE ALL PART OF THE HOLIDAY WEEKEND uh, WHERE WE ALL LOOKED DOWN AND WE SAW THE NEWS THAT THERE WAS THIS LATEST DOCUMENT REVEAL AND THOUGHT, WOW, THIS IS JUST, THIS IS GETTING BIGGER.
5: Yeah. And
6: that's exactly the the point of our next guest or one of our guests down the line, Byron York. He says this thing will get worse for the Biden administration before it gets better. And we're going to have Byron explain his kind of philosophy in that. And it will be fascinating to hear.
9: All right. We look forward to that.
6: Meantime, the White House declaring a major disaster in California after several storms dumped rain and snow on the state in recent weeks, swamping roads, triggering landslides, killing at least 19 and leaving thousands without power. Jeff Paul live for us in Los Angeles. And, Jeff, more severe weather today, we know, but but is there any end in sight to this?
1: Well, yeah, I really wish I was well, yeah, there. yeah, Trace, the rain has all but stopped, at least here in Southern California. But the impact from this latest round of storms will be felt for quite some time up and down the coast of California. And this image behind me right here really tells the story. That is a storm drain, and that is a whole heck of a lot of water flowing into the ocean. And unfortunately, in some areas, there are no drains like this. So it is just soaking into the ground, and that's led to washed-out roads like this one in Ojai, California. All of that rain is softening the ground, causing the roads to literally crumble into the river below and then wash away. As a result, you've got not only people trapped and unable to drive out of these hard-hit areas, but those who do try to leave are getting stuck in both flood waters and mud. Now, in Northern California, the situation is just as bad, if not worse. Several low-lying communities are under evacuation warnings. Multiple rivers there continue to rise, causing flooding, slick roads, and more rock and mudslides.
0: Okay, we'll keep an eye on the news. But anyway, just... The reverent way that uh, some of these artistic frauds are treated is is like the, the main reason for me doing a, a live stream today. So sometimes I think the mainstream media is right and the dissidents are wrong, but sometimes the dissidents are right and the mainstream media are exposed as frauds. And one of the best people for analyzing this is Steve Saylor. And uh, a, few, a few years ago, back in 2018, he wrote... In this era where it's nearly mandatory to greet each new black cultural product as effusively, as if we're a cross between the five-year plan and a Special Olympics gold medalist. (laughs) It's difficult to tell the fraud, such as Kehinde Wiley, the self-promoting photoshopper culpable for Obama's humiliatingly incompetent official portrait. (laughs) All right. From the sincere mediocrity such as Tart Nahisi Coates, from the competent professionals such as Ryan Kugler, director of the vastly overhyped but not bad movie Black Panther. So this, I mean, this this portrait, right, of, of Obama, right, he's shown here with with six fingers, right? With five fingers and a thumb. And, and the, the artist, Kehinde Wiley, just gets nothing but reverential treatment in, in the mainstream media. So they never talk about the extra finger mystery. When you go to the Wikipedia entry for Kehinde Wiley, they've got hundreds of words on his Obama portrait, but they don't say anything about why he painted Obama with one, two, three, four, five fingers and a thumb. Right, one, two, three, four, five. So why also is one of the back legs on the chair that Obama is sitting upon, broken looking, or is the famous painter Kehinde Wiley just incompetent at perspective? But does Kehinde not exactly paint much at all, he just outsources the actual painting to his assistants in Beijing. Here's the President Obama's official portrait of the biblical tale of Judah, Right. You see a proud African queen decapitating a Becky with the good hair. So Obama's portrait outsourcer of black bodies. This is Public Radio International. Kehinde Wiley reimagines old portraits because if Black Lives Matter they deserve to be in paintings. I've never had so many museum guards walk up to me like they did in Paris where they said, oh my God, I've never seen this many black bodies in a public space. I'm sure that's just what they said. So all this talk about black bodies, isn't this a little dehumanizing? So he acknowledges this is a delicate time for his work to be exhibited in France. Far-right politicians there have seen a surge in support. I think it's obvious that it's something that we see here in America, we see it in Brexit, we also see it in France, and all those black and brown bodies that are in places, like the recently dismantled migrant camp in Calais called the Jungle, have to be remembered as places that were once places of refuge for Eastern European Jews and homosexuals. Europe has been a place of refuge. Where should it stop with black and brown bodies? And uh, here is Kehinde Wiley's Times Square monument, right? Gay Black fascism in Times Square. So Kehinde Wiley is the gay African-American contractor who got the commission to do the official Barack Obama portrait. Somehow he portrays Obama as Homer Simpson receding into the hedge. He had his Chinese outsources paint Obama with six fingers. And this guy is just treated so reverently. Let's have a look at the, some of the coverage he gets. There's long
10: been growing resentment among minority groups at what defines classic art has historically been devoid of diverse voices and expressions.
2: Now, one young artist is changing that one brushstroke at a time, not just by redefining art, but by reimagining the great masters. Here's ABC's Mike Pickle.
3: Artist Kehinde Wiley has made a name for himself by putting his own spin on art history. For nearly 15 years, Wiley has taken to streets all over the world to ask men and women of color to model for his striking portraits.
0: Yeah, he, I'm sure he particularly likes to get uh, young men to model for him, right? He's gay. All distinctly
3: contemporary, the works have a historical air to them. That's because Wiley draws inspiration from classic paintings, posing his subjects who often appear in their street clothes to mimic paintings by the old masters. And in doing so, he has carved out a place for a community that has traditionally been ignored throughout art history, a disparity Wiley has been aware of since his youth. As a child, your mom brought you to the London Library and you saw the works of Gainsborough, Reynolds, Constable. What effect do these paintings have on you? My mother sent me to a school that allowed me to see some of the best art institutions in Los Angeles. Amongst them were 18th and 19th century examples of some of the great French and British portraits. Gilded frames, powdered wigs, jewels, and and lapdogs, all of this sort of strange code for class. In a strange way, what I did was I, I walked from one of the most underserved communities in California into one of the most resplendent rooms in Los Angeles. I was here able to picture things that I wanted to see. I was able to imagine what I would. And the only limitations within that field were my imagination. Despite having painted people of color almost exclusively for over a decade, Wiley's training began like so many other aspiring artists. In art classes, painting nude, mostly white, women. I was just wondering the challenges of moving from what I would assume is mostly painting white women in the art studio, nudes, and transitioning almost 180 to clothed black men you know it's arguable that I know how to paint white women better than I do black men because so much of my (laughs) educational history
0: yeah I'm not sure he knows how to do any of this and so there's this long reverential portrayal of him in the New Yorker how the artist Kehinde Wiley went from picturing power to building it his portrait of Obama sparked a nationwide pilgrimage right to see Obama with six fingers now he's establishing an arts empire of his own meaning he hires people to do the work for him. And nowhere in the Wikipedia entry for this guy, nowhere in this New Yorker article, does it mention he paints Obama with six fingers?
4: Autumn presents... Profiles. Published in the print issue of The New Yorker with the headline, The Painter and His Court. Written by Julian Lucas. Read by Prentice Oniemi, Soliciting pedestrians in the Matongue neighborhood of Brussels, Kahende Wiley, forty-five, looked more like a sidewalk canvasser than he did a world-famous artist. He sidled up to strangers in an orange hoodie and lime-green Air Jordans.
0: Yes, yeah, soliciting, cruising. Just giving up.
4: Extending a hand and flashing a gap-toothed grin, in nearly fluent French, he explained that he wanted to paint them and offered to pay three hundred euros if they came in for a photo shoot the following afternoon. Most passerby ignored him or gave excuses jobs, parking meters, and even a preference for being pictured exclusively from behind. For those who stopped, Wiley produced an exhibition catalog, flipping through pages of classically posed portraits with models who were black like them. It was early April, still freezing in the medieval city that Charles Baudelaire thought full of everything bland, everything sad, flavorless, asleep. On the Chassé du Wavre, a busy street lined with ads for cheap wire transfers and 100% Brazilian hair, many responded warily to the artist's invitation. You did these? Some asked. Others wanted to know if they could dress as they pleased.
0: You know why they were responding warily? Because they suspected he was just trying to pick them up.
4: It's your portrait, Wiley assured one skeptic. Oh, is it? The man replied. Another prospect not only refused, but ejected Wiley from a multi-story complex of barbershops and wig emporiums, jabbing him in the chest with an indignant forefinger as he warned that it was no place for an artist. Wiley took a drag from his cigarette, Benson & Hedges, the brand he smoked since high school, and then waved his assistant, cameraman, and studio manager down the block. Rejection keeps him humble, the artist insisted, but he also felt certain that those who walked past would eventually see his work and have a different reaction. Holy shit, I missed out on that? Among the people whom Wiley did persuade the clincher was often his presidential portrait of Barack Obama, confidently seated before a flowering wall of greenery. Everybody knew that face. But who was this painter coming on like a hustler in the city of spies and chocolatiers? He explained his background to a candidate from Congo. My father is Nigerian, my mother is American, and I'm lost. Wiley excels at the pickup line, a crucial ingredient in a practice that parallels cruising. I'm an artist, and you
0: yeah, let us pick up, cruising, hear what's
4: going on here. a work of art, he told a man named Patrick, who was sipping a beer in sunglasses and a fur-trimmed leather coat. The very image of an unflappable sapeau, Congolese French for dandy. He was still so excited by Wiley's attention that he dragged him off to meet a group of friends. They subjected the artist to a raucous sidewalk interrogation. Just black people, one man challenged. Black people with some style, Wiley answered. Hood stuff, basically, another flung back. No, you have to show up and decide, Wiley said. He played it cooler with a willowy young woman named Emerance, who was sitting on a railing with a glass of red wine. A lot of it is by chance, not because you're some superstar, Wiley said. I'm a superstar to my mom, she replied. There was even a man who was offended by the artist's fee. He'd do the sitting free for the love.
0: Okay, I can't, I can't take any more. But uh, I was when I can't sleep. I did sleep last night, so that's why I'm up so so early live streaming. But uh, as I was like not sleeping, I, I just leave an audible book running, and one of one of my uh, favorite books to leave running is a beautifully written book by the historian Alan Orpord, and it's called uh, Britain at Bay: The Epic Story of the Second World War. 1938 to 1941, and when he describes why Britain decided to, and France decided to intervene on behalf of Poland, it just reminds me of the current conflict with regard to Ukraine. So Poland had no geostrategic importance to either Britain or France, and uh, Poland was a, a more exemplary country, it was essentially a dictatorship than Czechoslovakia, which which Britain and France had already readily sacrificed in 1938 to to Hitler. So why did Britain and France finally make a stand with regard to Poland? And what, what would be the considerations that would draw NATO and the United States into a wider conflict with Russia in Ukraine? So three things have changed since Munich. So Munich, with the appeasement deal made in 1938 by the Prime Minister Chamberlain, made a deal with Hitler to allow Hitler to do what he wanted with Czechoslovakia. So three things have changed now in March 13, 1939. So first was that uh, the Joint Intelligence Committee of Britain's government gave a more optimistic assessment of Britain's military situation. So by delaying war with Germany, uh, many of the top minds in British defense thought that uh, Britain would be better prepared. So They are now more confident that Britain would be able to withstand an initial German aerial onslaught thanks to early warning radar and fast monoplane fighters going into service with the RAF, that's the Royal Air Force. So it's now believed that Britain in alliance with France would enjoy better staying power than Germany over the course of a war lasting three or more years. Uh, Second thing that changed was the foreign ministers growing independence from Chamberlain, so... The, the foreign minister said a, a war fought in, in defense of Poland or Romania would be devastating. The independence of neither state was of any inherent vital interest to Britain. Same with Ukraine to the United States. It was not possible to guarantee the integrity of, of Poland anyway, but it would still be better than doing nothing. And so I think part of the reason that we're shoveling billions of dollars worth of arms and aids to Ukraine is that... Uh, It's considered politically the wisest thing to do for the Biden administration, and many feel, oh, it's better than doing nothing. So imagine you go into foreign policy as your profession. So you're likely to feel important and thrilled and satisfied with your job if you don't intervene overseas. No, you get your feeling of importance. You, You get your feeling that you matter. You get the feeling that you're transforming the world, that you're playing a great, exciting game if you intervene. You don't get those thrills if you don't intervene. Third thing that changed was a growing sense among cabinet members that the public now wanted a tougher line towards Germany. So this was probably also a Biden administration consideration that uh, they thought it would be good for them politically to stand tough against Russia. So there were no Twitter feeds to monitor it in 1939. We didn't really have much uh, opinion polling. We had uh, by-elections with with mixed results. So politicians trying to define what the country wanted, they tended to base their conclusions on such dubious indicators as newspaper columns, letters received from constituents, or conversations with chauffeurs or groundkeepers. They tended to discover what they wanted to discover. By March 1939, several members of Chamberlain's government had concluded the public was tired of conciliating the Nazis. And that explains... Prime Minister Chamberlain's sudden and remarkable decision to offer an unconditional guarantee of support to Poland, March 31, 1939. Otherwise inexplicable, because there would be absolutely nothing that Britain and France could do to actually guarantee Poland's survival. But uh, sometimes people stumble into war because they feel, "Ah, it's better than than just doing nothing. And here's uh, JF Gutter P talking with Richard Spencer on January 11th
8: political goal because he's also admitted recently being a republican so i think right. that what he's he's talking here about uh, elon musk so jf is much more optimistic about elon musk than richard and i think elon musk approaches it from a diversity of thought humanitarian perspective and ultimately perhaps a, a megalomaniac goal of having an x platform the, the software of all software that may be his ultimate dream but for now what he's interested in is Reawaken the life of the internet that he has known as someone who was an early adopter of the internet world. Hmm.
5: Uh, okay. D- do you now, see of course, this of is also described in a global
8: kind of political goal because he's also admitted recently being a Republican. So I think right. that what he saw in 2016, as much as the big tech leftists keep saying we should never redo 2016, never again, I think that Elon is saying, yes, again, let's do it again.
5: Right. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit more ambivalent towards doing it again than you are.
8: Um, <laughs> but I, I think you were traumatized. I, I think you carry trauma from two thousand sixteen. Is that correct?
5: Well, sure. There there might be some truths to that. Um I the main thing is that if it's going to be done again, it will be done like we already saw it. It, it would be like it, it would be like you're you're up at bat in the big game and it's the ninth inning. I'm sorry for the American sports metaphor for a French Canadian, but <laughs> follow along if you can. You're up well, at bat, and uh, you strike out and then you go home and you start like pretending Okay, so
0: one more thought on uh, Britain, Poland, the origins of World War Two, and how they they may offer some insights into what's currently going on in Ukraine. So, during during the winter of nineteen thirty nine, early part of nineteen forty, the new British Prime Minister Winston Churchill thought it would be a good idea for Britain to invade Norway and. And try to block the importation of Swedish steel to Germany, and you know, Churchill claimed, "Oh, this will this will stop the war." And there was one problem: this would be a blatant violation of Norwegian sovereignty. So, Britain and France went to war in 1939 on behalf of Poland to protect, you know, Polish sovereignty. So, Britain was supposed to be fighting this war, right, to defend the very principles of international law but it was now determined to break. I mean, what would other neutrals like the United States think? Churchill was unmoved by what he saw as this pedantic objection. Small nations must not tie our hands when we are fighting for their rights and freedom. So this is the problem with pious explanations. You say, oh, you know, we're going to war to protect, you know, international law, uh, Polish sovereignty, but then to, you know, accomplish your goals, you're quite willing to ride roughshod over the sovereignty of other nations.
5: Thing to hit a home run and swinging away and going to the batting cage and hitting all these homers and like imagining that it was real because what, what i mean is that we've seen this thing and it didn't exactly work and there there was some trauma involved there were some things that shouldn't be repeated and i do get the sense from a lot of alt-right twitter that they desperately want to reinvent 2016 and kind of like a programmer they're trying to put the pieces back together. It's like, we saw this experiment. You know, if you put hydrogen and oxygen together in a tube and you light a match, boom, you get water. So let's reproduce that experiment. Well, that's not how history works. And I I feel like if they reproduce 2016, it would just be some like massively dumb Candace Owens version of like Ron DeSantis campaign. And I I almost would rather, yeah, I would obviously rather Joe Biden win again. I I think Joe Biden's pretty good too. Absolutely. You would still stand with Joe Biden. Oh yeah, 100%. Joe Biden, amazing. we could get into a debate about this if you like, but yeah. but you understand my point. They're they're trying to reproduce an experiment as if it were in a laboratory, but we're not in a laboratory. You don't reproduce these things. You no, have I to. I think move you're absolutely forward. right.
8: And if we were to go at it to- too much from a. Uh from a position of redoing exactly 2016, that would be cringe. And it's a little bit what Donald Trump, it's, it's the same cringe that I feel when Donald Trump goes with his I love America type of speech in, in 2023, 2022, and where it doesn't kind of catch like the 2016, because we all know it's a pale copy of who he's been and who, who he's been yeah. projecting to be. So if you go just from a nostalgia perspective, it will suck. But I think that the, the path that Elon is allowing, which is much cleverer than this, is let's make a chaotic situation again. And let's see what happens with the world once freed. Because I think that there are certain ingredients that, have, that haven't that have been mixed in properly in 2016. And I think that the redo of the experiment will lead to different results. Uh, for example, in 2016, I think that the whole discourse of the Democrats, this kind of radical anti-far right, uh, st- stemmed and succeeded at making things like Charlottesville really labeled as extremist things. And in a way, this is all constructed. This this is a a kind of fiction, if you want my opinion. Now, why has this fiction rooted itself into people's mind? It's because of media control. It's because of elitism. And it's because of leftist anger and the anti-Trumpism of them. Now, I think that if you redo some of the the ingredients of 2016 again in 2024, and if it's not Trump and it's someone else, and if Elon controls Twitter so much that there is this kind of natural, organic uh, action on Twitter rather than this controlled discourse and controlled al- algorithms, I think you might get a different outcome. And I think that simply the fact that people have been desensitized to the idea of white discourse or white positive discourse, uh, at some point, you know, it's not going to trigger them just as much. And I think some but of the ideas that didn't quite that? make it then, they can make it now.
5: Didn't we already see that? I mean, wasn't January 6th a kind of reboot of Charlottesville in a way? I mean, I don't, it was not the same people. There, there, there's some overlap say, Fuentes and Baked Alaska and some other characters. But overall, it was different people. But don't you think that was a kind of reboot that was the final triumph of the optics debate of, like, we're going to wave flags and be patriotic conservatives? No, to the
8: contrary. I see the takeover, because the January 6th events occurred under the same type of mediatic elitist control. I I think to the contrary that the takeover of Twitter by Elon Musk is the beginning of the end for this form of uh, control of uh, the discourse, and that things that will happen from here will have a kind of fair window to express themselves through a truly organic population of individuals on Twitter. That's why his fight against bots and is, is kind of recuperation of a, of a principle of you have a Twitter account, you're a human, and we, we won't promote the liberal talking point systematically. All of this creates very fertile ground for innovative stuff to happen, stuff that we can finally look at and be surprised, because I'll be honest, it's been seven years that I haven't been surprised by the world. Maybe maybe if you if you put out the yay stuff because yay kind of came out of nowhere and surprised me, but I want some yes. excitement. I want some things to happen that is not controlled by CNN, MSNBC and, and stuff like this.
7: Yeah,
0: I think that was key. I want excitement and, and that drives much of distant politics. Normally, if you're married and you have children, right? You have all the excitement that you need. But if you don't have that kind of stable family life, then you go looking for excitement. Sometimes you can meet your excitement needs in good ways, others in, uh, or anti ways.
5: I agree. And I agree with a general positive attitude, attitude towards yay, even though it's not what I like or what I would do. I, <laughs> I agree. there. There is something just, uh, disarming about the, you know, love speech and I love Bibi Netanyahu, but I really love Hitler. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> it, uh, it, it was something that captured that crazy Dionysian energy of the alt-right. Um,
11: yeah.
5: <sighs> You might be underestimating the degree to which the right was somewhat synthetic, though, and also what wasn't just a kind of pure spontaneous order. But anyway, that's maybe well, that's interesting.
8: Educate me about this. Uh, wh- what are you referring
5: to? Well, there's no doubt that many of these bots that you're lamenting, and, and, and I agree with you, and, and Elon has expressed his lament that many of those kinds of things played into this, and I don't think that the I mean, the alt-right is gone in a way. I mean, it was a phenomenon of yeah. yesterday. I think what's happening now is different and should be distinguished. But there were also, I, I got sniffs, let's say, of foreign actors being very interested in the alt-right and so on for their own means. So it, it wasn't just a kind of spontaneous order. You know, it served certain ends. And let's also not forget that all of those, you know, CNN, New York Times, et cetera. I mean, a lot of the criticisms of me do have a kernel of truth to them, even if they are given in bad faith and kind of silly on some level. This idea that the mainstream media actually loved the alt-right and promoted it. I mean, that, that was one of the interesting dynamics is that Bannon and, you know, Bannon obviously has his connections. He wanted to get the alt-right as basically the Breitbart comment section. And if they were racist or even anti-Semitic, or certainly if they were misogynist, they were, they were welcome. And, but it was ultimately kind of serving his end. I mean, as he said famously, you know, Breitbart is the platform for the alt-right. He said that to Sarah Posner. And what I read from that is that he wanted to channel it. And even if you look at like Milo's um, article on the alt-right, from I think from like June of 2016, it was this total whitewash. It was, you know, it, it didn't get into the stuff that you're interested in of Darwinism and evolution and, (laughs) the the future of intelligence, all that kind of stuff. It it, it dispensed with that. I don't think my name was mentioned in it. And Mm -hmm. it was basically, these guys are like paleo conservatives. And it was a whitewash. And it was an attempt to channel that energy. I mean, none of them believed any of this, particularly Milo, who knew everyone in the alt-right. But it was this way of channeling that energy towards Donald Trump, who was at that time, by the the midsummer, ultimately the Republican candidate. And I think they are very much trying to do this again in the sense that, there's less and less of a differentiation between the mainstream right and the dissident right, if we want to use that term. So back in 2016, the mainstream right had declared war, absolute war on the alt-right. And the alt-right was just like, yeah, bring it on. You're a cuck. Yeah. And that was the dynamic. And the remarkable thing about it was that Trump won. So Trump did an end run around the... And I'm not talking about like CNN or The New York Times. I think CNN and MSNBC helped Trump immeasurably, in fact, despite the fact that he called them fake news later on. Like, the indispensable component of his campaigning was going on CNN. But I'll leave that you know, aside for now. The Republican establishment did not want this. They want, you know, multicultural libertarianism or whatever the hell they want. Tax yeah, cuts, not even not even tax libertarianism. Cuts for Indians. Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who knows? Um, and they declared war, but we kind of won via Trump. But at some point, the dynamic changed, and Hillary Clinton was attacking the alt right um, and and kind of inflating it while she was attacking it. Mm-hmm. And it was a like let's use this. And at this point, I mean, you know, if you go and look on Twitter, and someone says like public school teachers are groomers and they want to take away your, st- your <laughs> gas oven and um, their demons and whatever. You don't know if that is Andrew Anglin or like a Republican in Congress. You mm-hmm. don't know if you just read those lines. But see, that's so, quite fitting. That's a victory. Uh, well, there's there certain costs to that victory.
8: There are and costs, but I see it as a victory that basically every single point of the alt-right in 2016 has been recycled in one form or another right basically the altrete was disembodied and cannibalized and uh its cadaver was recycled in every possible way this means first that there was some good stuff there and it also means that a a relatively organic, although I will agree with you. I've seen the butt problem. I was a streamer forever. So, I, I mean, I, I've been at the forefront of distinguishing between what's what's a, a true audience and what's a fake audience. And through the super chats, in a way, I, I've, I've learned that the butts don't have much money. <laughs> and so eventually you can, you can tire them off. Uh, but yeah, so I think there's so much victory to be celebrating. And I see it as much broader than just a question of the evolution of the alt-right. To-
0: so much victory to, to be celebrating. I mean, the alt-right absolutely collapsed. Almost nobody identifies with the alt-right. And Richard Spencer saw to it by November of 2016 that anyone with anything to lose could not identify with the alt-right because Richard Spencer determined to equate the alt-right with Nazism, which is not a good look in Anglo countries, right? Anglo countries, countries that are at war with Germany in World War II, all right? They don't really regard those as, as happy times. And the most damning, Part of the fall of the alt-right was that it was for the same reason that various iterations of white nationalism had failed before, and that was the very low quality of the people who supported it, you know, largely criminals, people who liked to play dress-up, people who needed drama because their lives were so empty, they needed to distract themselves from their own personal losing and
8: passivity where it's death and the current state of this segment of the population. I look at the whole internet and I see vaccine resistance movement. I see freedom resistance movement. And I feel life in all of this all at the same time. And they were all squashed under the censorship control in the last three to four years.
5: It might just be a, a situation where we have different perspectives and this different strategies. Um, I, I mean, look, the alt-right was obviously a lot bigger than me. And it was mm-hmm. something that I couldn't control. That, that's clear. But I genuinely wanted to ride this out of control horse in in a different direction and that was impossible and I don't support the direction that the horse has gone so you know on some level we just simply have different perspectives on that and that's obviously good we're we're, we're hashing it out Uh, but even if I did embrace say vaccine anti-vaccine animus and a lot of this stuff I would even then be a bit skeptical of Charlie Kirk mouthing all my lines and I mean look at the difference between say the alt-right and QAnon and as I've said, I've, I've stipulated that the alt-right was manufactured in, a, in, a, in a all sort of complicated ways. And, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that go for now. Look yeah. at QAnon in the sense that it was much wilder than the alt-right. Yes. And arguably, kind of, you know, the alt-right would do a gas chamber meme with Hillary Clinton or whatever. Or QAnon would organize. Right, have a holocaust. Yeah, QAnon <laughs> would, like, create a gallows for an actual politician. I mean, there, there's a different. I mean, it's arguably, like, much worse, much more popular as well because the alt-right was kind of like okay boomer. I mean I, I think I wouldn't be surprised if the alt-right like invented that meme on some level. There was a ton of anti-boomer stuff almost over the
0: I was shocked at the number of married Orthodox Jewish women, women with children who are into QAnon. I mean it was huge in the Orthodox Jewish community just a few years ago,
5: particularly among those who didn't go to a secular university. Top and stuff I don't support but but anyway it it was it was antagonistic. The QAnon was able to call upon kind of like pre-existing hangups of Republican voters and, and many non-Republican voters. And it was able to channel it towards the Republican Party. So it was like the alt-right on steroids, but then in this weird way, it was like Alex Jones in a business suit. And what I mean by that is that it was much more just objectively functionally conformist. Because it said, mm-hmm. trust the plan, you're anonymous. Trump is doing it. Trump's killing all these people in the CIA as we speak. They're, you know, mm-hmm. they're gonna be hanged in center, center of town square. <laughs> Um, and so it was a kind of like, just vote Republican, believe in God, and wave the flag. And that's how we'll win. Even though the ideology was total lunacy and it was a kind of weird Christian no- Gnosticism. It, it...
0: Ideology doesn't really matter that much for whether or not someone's going to take on a cause like QAnon. So most people who were into QAnon, it did ruin their lives, All right, They still paid their bills, paid their rent, raised their kids, right? acted like responsible adults. It was a form of excitement and entertainment. So all sorts of things that, you know, we might regard as heinous ideologies or stupid ideologies. It's just a way for less perceptive people to get a feeling of, you know, excitement and and drama in their lives. And it doesn't necessarily have any negative effects on their real world decision making.
5: Was hyperconformist in this odd way. And it it also had probably, no, definitely more casualties of the alt-right. Now, granted, it's a lot bigger. But not only the deaths, like Ashley Babbitt is someone who's clearly whatever whether or not you think that the shooting of her was justified and you know i could hear arguments the other way I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that whether or not you think it's justified there's no question that her mind was warped i mean her final words yes. on a live stream were a quotation of a q drop like there's no question <laughs> like what am i doing here how did i this kind of like goofy
7: yeah if you start
0: flying to events and, and breaking the law all right that's that's taking this this entertainment drama a little too far for your own well
5: girl from the air force or wherever and has a pool cleaning company how did i end up invading the capital i mean that, that's a remarkable story and there are, there were kind of like more casualties along the way so i i guess i'm just more cynical towards these things i, I think these things can be weaponized in ways that are bad and uh I, i'm i don't know i i, feel, I guess maybe also i guess a... everything can be weaponized in ways that are bad
0: i mean judaism christianity god water exercise
5: a bit of a tendency of like yeah, the alt-right, that's, that's so 2016. Like, we've got to move upwards and onwards. Like, no one was praising me for writing alt-right content in 2010, you know? Mm-hmm. All I got were attacks from the conservative establishment, but I did it. And then there's a point where, you know, I, I, uh, you know I'll just say it with the stuff that Mark and I are doing. It's like, you guys are going to be saying this in 2030, whether you like it or not. You're going to, be... so like, we've moved on. <laughs> and when I see people just like in a trench or a rut, I'm just kind of like... <sighs>
0: Richard Spencer
5: thinks that people are going to be echoing Apolloism
0: in the years ahead, that Apolloism is going to be sweeping the world.
8: You know, I, I don't see it
5: as like a new freedom awakening or something. Go on.
8: Yeah, I, I just want to be clear that I'm not suggesting, sug- suggesting that we should bring back the alt-right. I'm okay. saying let's bring back the, 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 the ambience of liberty under which something like the alt-right showed up and, and rose. And let's see what happens then. I'm not saying to bring back even any of the arguments or elements of the alt-right. I'm saying I can finally feel that something will happen. Something great, something fun, something challenging for the mind, And I can't wait for it to happen, but it couldn't have happened under the fully controlled social media landscape of the last two years. So that's why I'm cheering. Uh, What happens in particular, I don't really care. I want it to be as big and as beautiful and as life changing because you mentioned the comparison between QAnon. I agree with everything you've said between QAnon and the alt-right. But QAnon will have literally zero cultural impact, whereas the alt-right can be argued to have one of the great one of the events and one of the groups with the greatest cultural impact in the history of the last few decades on America.
5: I think that's actually true. The only thing QAnon has left us are really bad T-shirts, yes. like double XL American and terrible memes, Punisher mask. I,
8: I can I can sniff a meme from the from QAnon. It's terrible. I see them and I'm like, this was written by QAnon boomer.
5: <laughs> that is that's definitely true. Okay, uh, let's leave that there. I, I wanted to go because I, I think we both said our piece, and and it's 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 an interesting. Okay, that was Richard Spencer there talking with uh, JF P.
0: All right, uh, season two of The Test is now on Amazon Prime Video, so it's about Australia's Test cricket team. The first season, 10 episodes about how Australia rebounded from its disgrace in South Africa where several of its key players were found to be deliberately tampering with the ball. Now we're on to season two, and uh, we discover that there's an Aborigine on the Australian Test cricket team, something to celebrate here on Martin Luther King Day
7: little about Scott Boland, and I don't think many of the of, of my colleagues did either.
12: He could have comfortably walked down the main thoroughfare, pretty well anonymous.
0: So Scott Boland uh, discovered a few years ago
13: <laughs> that he has a apparition. Scotty was sitting here, and Uzi walked in, and God. was just like Scotty mate, come on! Scotty's now over near the coffee machine instead of uh, instead of where he was. Poor man's on debut now, and Uzi's not even playing. Standard Ousman, really. Youngster's yeah, got to earn his turf. to earn his turf. <laughs> <You're> to a... <laughs> He's such a freak. Scotty's such a nice guy, too. In my defence, I did ask him if he wanted to move, and he said no. It's <laughs> like him. It's
7: like him. I remember where I sat in the room, and it's not where I usually sit for Victoria. I was next to the fridges, and the catering table, and the coffee machine.
13: Scott Boland really deserved his opportunity, he's been a stalwart for the Victorian team for years. He's been a professional cricketer for probably 12 years and this is his first time playing for Australia. He might not ever get that chance again.
7: My goal going into the start of this year was to try and get into a test squad, but it's pretty hard to get selected. There'd be a few hundred professional male cricketers in Australia all wanted to be in a test squad or a one day squad. so. Everyone's got the same goal.
14: There was a lot of significance coming into this test match. Scott Boland, only the fourth Indigenous person to play for Australia, only the second Indigenous male. And our record really of promoting Indigenous cricketers in Australia is a shameful one.
0: (laughs) The, The second Indigenous male to play for Australia's test cricket team. And, I mean, is he... 10% Indigenous, 20% like at at what? If you're 2%, are you still counted as Indigenous? And why is it a shameful one that only two Indigenous men have played for Australia's test cricket team, right? Different people have have different gifts, right? I don't think there are a whole lot of Jews playing in the NBA or the NFL, but as a convert to Orthodox Judaism, I don't feel oppressed by that. I don't consider it shameful that uh, Jews often have quite different gifts and say aboriginals that Ashkenazi Jews often have different gifts from Mizrahi Jews and Sephardic Jews. That was Gideon Hay, the, the author, just uh, filled with white guilt that there have only been two Indigenous male Australian test cricketers and what even counts as Indigenous is like 10%. I mean, Scott Bolden, you know, passes as another white Australian.
14: Australia's fallen well short of where it should be.
0: Oh, where should it be? Like, what is, the, what is the number of uh, Indigenous Australian test cricketers that we, we should have?
14: The MCG starting to fill up
10: such a great atmosphere at this famous ground.
7: Boxing That's Day.
10: The, uh, Melbourne,
0: Melbourne Cricket Ground. Where, uh, Scott Boland took, uh, six wickets. Got him! He took six at the end What FCG. a great actor from
13: the England side. show some character. It's been a great contest today. England have got themselves right back in the test match.
0: And, uh, then it shows video of Scott Boland e- exploring his, uh, Aboriginal roots out in the roof as rock. Looks like. I mean, I don't know, the like 10% indigenous. 20%. But uh, very dramatic video footage of him out at uh, We're from
7: John tribe, so like the Colac area in Victoria. My granddad was originally from there. He sort of got taken away from that area. He was adopted when he was young and there was always sort of a bit of a...
0: Okay, so many Aboriginal communities, every single Aboriginal child is, has been sexually molested. Right, so when he talks about taking him away from that, it's like taking him away in all likelihood from horrendous sexual abuse, other forms of abuse, dysfunction, right? His, his granddad got to have a much better life because he was removed from a heinous atmosphere.
7: Untold story there. We found out about our Indigenous heritage um, after granddad passed away, which was probably 10, 15 years ago now.
0: Okay, so they knew their granddad, right, but they didn't know he was Indigenous, so he must not have been, like, 100% Aboriginal, right? We're talking about someone that at most 50% Aboriginal who passed as, as just another white Australian. Yeah. Yeah.
7: How old are these ones? I,
14: don't
7: know. I think growing up not knowing about our family heritage and then wanting to learn more about it now that <laughs> me and my brother have gotten a bit older, I think it's really helped that we've had people to lean on and, and talk to and they can teach us stuff about our Aboriginal history that, well, we'll we once would have known.
0: And so it goes out to uh, Ezra Rock and uh, Tudor's... Uh, ..not the most athletic Indigenous So I'm the second male
7: Aboriginal test cricketer. At the moment, I've got a great opportunity to come out to remote areas of Australia and try and help promote cricket to these communities. And hopefully over time that we can get more Indigenous, like young Indigenous boys and girls to play more cricket and for cricket to be a bit more mainstream. That's what Australia really
0: needs. This is one of Australia's pressing issues.
7: The best way for me to be a role model is to keep playing cricket. <laughs> get going. And keep being seen because you can't be what you can't see. You can't be
0: what you can't see. Yeah, we really need role models. I mean, how come it's basically any black communities that we always hearing need role models? Don't hear that about Jewish communities or Anglo communities or East Asian communities.
12: Australia doesn't have an overwhelming ascendancy in the test match after two innings. So talking
0: about the five test match series here with England, Last year, where Australia just ended up dominating. But uh, so much politically correct nonsense in this series. Let me play a little bit more. So, so Scott Boland takes six wickets, and so he gets honoured.
12: It's there in the presentation of the Johnny Muller medal.
0: So the Johnny Muller medal, there was an Aboriginal team that uh, toured England about 140 years ago. Johnny Muller was an all-round cricketer who was Indigenous.
10: This is the Cathy Freeman moment.
0: So Cathy Freeman's Aboriginal who won at least two gold medals at the 2000 Olympics in Sydney.
1: It's with a great honour that we recognise and celebrate and congratulate you, Scott, as one of our very own...
0: And that's just gonna what change, you know, all these Aboriginal lives because he takes six wickets and he's what, ten percent Aboriginal by genetics.
7: From the 1868 tour, that was the Aboriginal team that went over to England with the first Australian sporting team to leave the shores to go play sport in another country. And Johnny Muller was their star all rounder. Now he's got the Boxing Day player of the match named after him.
13: I just think it was a huge inspiration to all those that perhaps didn't feel that cricket was a sport for them. Just
0: a huge inspiration, just completely changing their lives. It's just going to really turn things around and, and maybe stop, uh, stop snipping petrol because of Scott Boland. Stop stepping, Patrick, guys. Now, uh, Australia also has a Muslim player, Usman Khawajic. He speaking at an Islamic college in
14: Brisbane.
13: I was born in Pakistan, and we moved here when I was four years old. A lot of the times in the school, was only maybe two or three coloured kids, mostly just white Australian kids around me, so... You're very lucky to have lots of multicultural kids around you.
3: When you were young, did people judge you on how you were
13: and what you thought about? Yep. You've got to realise, I grew up in Australia in 1990s, and people didn't even know it was what Islam really was back then. People would automatically just assume I was from India. They thought Hinduism and, and Islam was the same thing. They asked me, oh, why don't I wear a turban? Because of that, I felt judged. I used to be called a lot of names. Mantra, um, you know derogatory term.
0: So you really think that the more Australians learn about Islam, the more positive feelings they will have about it, or the more Australians learn about Judaism, my own religion, the more positive feelings they're going to have about it. Right? The more, for example, I know in empirical real life, the more that Orthodox Jews and non-Orthodox Jews you know interact, the more they tend to hate each other. So I'm not at all sure that uh, the more Aussies know about Islam, you
13: know, the less they're going to be fearful of it. I never let them show that it hurt me, but it did. <laughs> Particularly if you look slightly different, you're going to get people who try to bring you down and you've got to have faith in yourself. Most of the time people do that is because they're afraid of what they don't know. They're afraid of what they don't understand. Do we have another question?
9: Beautiful. What's your favourite part about playing cricket?
13: My favourite part about playing cricket is being in a team. My brothers will tell you that when I, they beat me in anything, I wasn't a very good loser. <laughs> I used to throw things at them, I used to cry. But when I was in a team with cricket, I felt like we were all a part of something. So when we win, we could celebrate together, but when we lost, we also had each other. That's the part that I love about team sports because you actually share something together. Don't lose the paper now, right? Don't lose it.
0: OK, Australia going all uh, multi If you're curious about Twitter, uh, Cricket, there's a good documentary on Netflix about uh, the Indian uh, League, T20 version of of Cricket, and uh, then there's on Amazon Prime, The Test. Okay, interesting article here from CNN from a few days ago, How White House Missteps Exacerbated Biden's Classified Documents Headaches. This kind of illustrates a point that I make a lot on this show, that there's there's the law on the books, but then there's a the law as it, it is applied in real life. So you can have objective laws on the books, but those laws have to be enforced and prosecuted by individuals. So there's always going to be a, a huge subjective element in law. Joe Biden is facing the worst political crisis of his presidency after a failed attempt to damage control over his classified documents controversy landed him with what all White House's dread the naming of a special counsel. And so we found all these batches of classified documents in Biden's possession, made it look like Biden had something to hide. It set up a kind of drip, drip of disclosures guaranteed to supercharge a Washington scandal. So the result is the White House has offered a huge opening for a new Republican House majority committed to proving its own conspiracy theories that a liberal deep state has politicized justice to attack Trump and cover up wrongdoing by Democratic presidents. But it doesn't have to be such a far-out conspiracy. Once you get clear, laws are always enforced by human beings, prosecuted by human beings. There's always going to be a substantial subjective element when it comes to law. So there's this haunting fear in the Biden administration As a special counsel sweeps into view. There's the dreaded possibility they could cover some unrelated but damning areas of wrongdoing. More unflattering details could come out. And the deepening deepening controversy is halted. by what many Democrats saw as a White House winning streak. Now, CNN says Biden faces far less legal, legal exposure than Donald Trump. But the glaring vulnerability for Joe Biden is that while the two cases can be separated legally, they are politically intertwined. So there is the legal dimension, there's the political, the popular, the cultural dimension. And things don't just go as they are laid out in law books. Right? Any conclusion after twin special counsel probes that clear a Biden but accused Trump of wrongdoing will cause uproar among Republicans, whatever the relative facts of each case. Yeah, those are the political subjective realities. Right. Here's an interesting discussion. Truth, trust, and the culture war. And Chris Kavanaugh is speaking here from Decoding the Gurus. Uh,
12: tourist visas are not allowed, but uh, students are not allowed back in. And scientists can have reasonable disagreement about controversial topics, and including public health measures. So those things were kind of priced into my uh, uh, equation.
0: So this was conducted in April of last year.
12: For how things would be dealt with in a pandemic or, or some global health crisis. Now, I've never experienced one of them in my lifetime, uh, except for you know SARS. And that was obviously very different than now. So there were lots of things that were interesting to see about that, how that played out. But the thing that struck me probably most strongly was how uh, evoking an anti-institutional sentiment or anti-establishment uh, pose was basically a cheat code to attention. Um, and the thing that sort of surprised me a little bit about that is that um, during a global pandemic, which I, almost everybody in the you know reasonable sphere can recognise, resulted in you know over a million deaths worldwide, and has like uh, had very serious effects on you know people's health in most countries, and that. Anti-establishment sentiment and partisan politics is so strong that it those facts kind of didn't have a massive impact on the ability for people to deny uh, the the impact, and actually led to a resurgence of anti-vaccine, anti-public health sentiment. So that was that was probably a surprise to me. Um, but. Over the course of the pandemic, I've spent more time looking at uh, what happened in response to you know previous pandemics and and various efforts to uh, do national vaccines or, or global vaccine efforts and in all cases there 's been a, a strong reaction against them so i guess I, I probably was naive in anticipating that uh, this would be different. Um, another point would be that the vaccine and anti vaccine and conspiracy ecosystems are vibrant and flourishing. I already knew that because I had a, a personal interest, but I was quite surprised at how they were able to capture more mainstream attention than they had before that had already started to happen uh, in the kind of trump era and uh, with you know and um, we could discuss that about the influence of politics on that but um basically you know andrew wakefield was was a figure that was on the fringe and wouldn't be invited on the you know mainstream news to discuss things he wouldn't likely appear on joe rogan but uh brett weinstein pierre Corey, robert malone and peter mcculloch and the entire new wave uh, all broke through and were given mainstream attention especially on right-wing media um so I, I guess my message about truth and trust is that there are very real issues and limitations with mainstream institutions um, and, and mainstream media and news sources. But often those issues result in people ignoring huge problems in alternative ecosystems. And I uh, I think it's important that we extend like a critical sentiment across all of the ecosystems we include. Um, and I guess the, the last thing just before handing over to Ben is that uh, despite disagreements and emphasis that we might all have on the panel, I think we probably do all agree that it's it's semi-miraculous that there were effective vaccines produced so quickly that work extremely well and are extremely safe and that covid is more dangerous uh, than the vaccines uh, including including um, okay. and so while we can debate things about masking rules school openings uh, the necessity or efficacy of booster shots um or recommendations about travel and whatnot um i think these are all things that we can have reasonable disagreement and and discuss the feelings of the mainstream institution but we
0: so I, I often hear people say, oh, why, why should children take a COVID vaccine? Well, approximately 1,600 children in the United States have died from COVID, right? Infinitely larger number than, than any children who, you know, God forbid, and there's no evidence for this, have died from from the vaccine. So when you compare the risks and the downsides of the vaccine compared to the, the benefits of the vaccine, it's overwhelming. That uh, vaccines of all the ones that have been licensed and legalized in the United States, that, that all of them are far better than, than not taking any vaccine at all. all right, let's go to some assessment coverage here. Again, Trace, just
2: underlining here how important today's meeting is. Republicans getting together on the holiday shows just how eager they are to get their investigations underway. Trace.
6: Indeed, it does. Aisha Husney live for us in D.C. should thank you, you
9: lot to dig into there. Let's bring in Wisconsin Republican Congressman Mike Gallagher. Please do weigh in, sir, because we're watching all of this play out. We wonder how bad it's going to get.
11: Well, I
10: think you can count on the Republican-controlled House of Representatives to seek the truth. We do have serious concerns about what appears to be a double standard. We have serious concerns about the casual treatment of classified Documents, that's why. Okay, we'll keep
0: an eye on that story. A reverential article here in Los Angeles Times, we're forever changed a year after hostage ordeal, a Texas synagogue quotes with with trauma. So this is the synagogue where the rabbi let a homeless man in, and then the homeless man held them at gunpoint. and And the rabbi says he doesn't regret it. So... It's all you know very well to to blame you know other people for your problems, but this rabbi brought this problem on, so Colleyville, Texas, a year ago, Jeff Poe and three others survived a hostage standoff at their reform Jewish synagogue in this Fort Worth suburb. The trauma did not disappear, though with the FBIs killing of their pistol wielding captor forty four year old British national Malik Faisal Akram, very British name, Malik Faisal Akram healing. From the January 15, 2022 ordeal remains an ongoing process. Why? Why is healing the focus of these articles? Let's be blunt: we're healing, we're not healed," said said Cohen. All right. So this all started because the rabbi you know, let in a man who appeared homeless. All right. You, you don't you don't allow strangers right into into your home. It, it shouldn't be should be that complicated, right? You don't allow them into your church. You shouldn't allow them into your synagogue. It's just crazy.
6: All of them, but a large chunk, have become what I call MAGA Republicans, Trump Republicans, with little respect for rule of
9: law. Okay, so that was them then. Here they are now, dodging questions about the importance of these findings. Listen. Do
2: you have any comment on... Um... President Biden keeping classified
4: documents. You seem much more measured about this than with the Trump documents, because you call for transparency with the Trump documents. You want lawmakers to have access to the documents seized from the former president, uh, his residence in Florida, which it seems like you. bottom
6: line is, I said that night it's premature to comment on what should be done. So you think that your statements are
4: consistent for both? I
6: sure do.
9: So do you have confidence that this will be a bipartisan concern from from the Congress on this.
1: Well, I've been in. Yeah, right.
0: Okay, we've got uh, Edward Dutton here coming, carrying on a conversation about the psychology of incels. Let's check and this out. That uh, is
15: Mr. William Costello, who is a PhD student, I think, at the University of Texas and is studying incels. And we're going to be talking about the incel phenomenon and his research on incels. And so while I side the old entropy, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself. So William, over
11: to you. Yeah, th- thanks for that, Ed. Um, happy to be here in the Jolly Heretic. Uh, so yeah, like you said, my name is William Costello. I'm a PhD student here in University of Texas at Austin, um, where I'm part of Dr. David Buss's Evolutionary Psychology Lab. Um, last year, or in 2021, I graduated with a Master's in Psychology, Culture and Evolution from Brunel University in London, uh, where my dissertation focused on the psychology of incels, or involuntary celibates. I'm still working on a little bit more research into that topic, and so happy to talk to you Next. all oh, is he Irish, says. Yes, he is indeed.
15: So, Slanja, Sláinte. Slanja. I've
8: I'm even worn that Irish about. Gaelic football
15: jersey to represent. Oh, yes, well done. OK, so cheers, everybody. Cheers, Helgen, Gergen, Capis, Saludo, Salu, Prost, Proust, Skoll, uh, Yakidar, and, and um So they're delayed for a week. Um, and then on Thursdays, I have a base guest, but Hubcat oh, passed away. Oh. OK, so, um, so uh, uh, Margaret has passed, Mr. Allendeau. Yes, anyway, so cheers, Mr. Allendeau. Cheers, everyone. So um, this incel phenomenon, then, it has, um, I mean, 20 years ago, even, we'd already heard or 15 years ago of herbivore males in Japan. And this was these, these men that, that had dropped out of the dating market and, um, and whatever. Uh, but But that was just kind of seen in Japan as rather sad whereas um incels are seen as rather dangerous and you even have uh, the prime minister being asked about uh, Andrew Tate and whatever uh in, in parliament i think it was today so for those that aren't familiar with it uh, what is this uh, incel phenomenon and uh, what are the characteristics of a of a typical incel
11: Uh, Okay, so, yeah, so just to pick up on a couple of things you said there in the introduction, uh, the Japanese phenomenon was called the hikikimori. And there's a very good documentary on uh, the BBC, I believe, that you can still watch on YouTube uh, about them. And it's called like the Forgotten Generation. And it basically describes a generation of young men who have kind of retired to their homes and don't leave and don't really participate in society. And like you said, they were kind of seen as... Quite sympathetically people kind of saw it as quite a sad phenomenon whereas the incel phenomenon is a, a kind of a modern iteration of that hikikimori but it's more centered around sex and romance so incel stands for involuntary celibate uh, and they're a subculture community of men um who uh, form a strong sense of identity around their perceived inability to form sexual or romantic uh, relationships and um, Now, typically, when you have a surplus population of young men who are unpartnered in any given society, that's a really dangerous thing for that society. They disproportionately harm themselves and others. And in the evolutionary psychology literature, we call that young male syndrome, that these men are perhaps the the most dangerous kind of demographic. Um, And indeed, some incels a significant minority of incels engage in kind of online misogyny and kind of trolling. That's kind of central to the online identity. And an even rarer minority still go on to commit acts of violence. The, the most famous would be uh, Elliot Roger, who wrote a manifesto uh, talking about how he would, um, uh, you know, have, have a beta uprising and how he wanted to kill the Chads and the Stacys. Um, very, very narcissistic individual And he he went on to kill people in uh, the most famous act of violence in Isla Vista in California. Um, But given the media attention uh, towards all this danger and acts of violence, uh, there's actually only been 59 uh, deaths worldwide attributable to incel violence. Ten of those alone can be...
0: Okay, we know about an enormous amount of violence unleashed by Black Lives Matter. But Black Lives Matter is not treated as this terrorist group that has helped to unleash thousands of extra murders, discourage policing so that we have thousands of extra traffic fatalities and and pedestrian deaths. So when you compare the death toll of Black Lives Matter to incels, right, like Black Lives Matter has, has, has caused the deaths of hundreds of more people than incels, yet incels are regarded as a dangerous movement And Black Lives Matter is regarded as this beneficent, you know, wonderful movement that is helping us to, you know, become better.
11: Accounted for by a guy called Alec Manazian. Alec Manazian is the guy who in 2014 used a rental van to drive into and kill 10 people in Toronto. And the night before he did that, he put up a Facebook post about how he was going to spark an incel rebellion and how they would overthrow the Chads and the Stacys and all hail Elliot Rogers. So it's very sensational kind of stuff. And in the media, whenever you read an article about incels, Alec Manazian is pretty much front and center as the poster boy of the movement. Um, But what is not reported uh, most often in those stories is the judge's verdict on the Alec Manazian case. So the judge uh, in the sentencing verdict uh, said of Alec Manazian, he told lies deliberately to depict the killings as being connected to the incel movement to get more media attention. He piggybacked on the incel movement to ratchet up his own notoriety. His story to the police about the attack being an incel rebellion was a lie. So you very rarely hear that kind of slant on the media uh, present uh, presentation of the incel threat. Uh, so it's a bit of a weird one that... Typically, you would expect this demographic of sexless young men to be very well, dangerous.
15: Want to go back a bit, though, why has it manifested at all? I mean, if we if we go back to uh, 1920 to 1921 census, uh, they were talking about a spinster crisis and particularly mm. a spinster crisis among the upper and upper middle class, because... Um, 8% of people that went out in World War One were killed, but it was 12% of the officers and the women wouldn't marry down. And so therefore you had all these these spinsters. I remember some of them still when I was a young boy. You'd have these upper class, upper middle class spinsters like in faulty Towers. Um, and and now um, it's completely reversed. And I mean, even though the sex ratio at birth is only slightly tilted in favour of boys. Um, so why has it become such a notable phenomenon over the last 20, uh, well, 15 years or so? Yeah, so I
11: suppose there is a kind of a a strong online internet identity. And when I first started uh, studying the topic, I kind of thought, how could someone really kind of define themselves as incel? Why would they want to uh, broadcast this fact about themselves or or hunker down into that identity? But I actually kind of began to realize that incels get a lot out of the incel identity. They get a sense of community. They get a victimhood identity they got a, a, a clear black and white way to view the world, a, a common enemy, a kind of fun, rich lexicon of trolling kind of language. So it could be that this generation of men uh, for the first time through the Internet are.
0: Yeah, that's that's really important. So the, the idea that we should never walk around with any sense of victimhood does not really seem to be adaptive to reality. So too high a sense of victimhood, it robs you of agency and it makes you less adept to navigating reality. But a moderate to small amount of victimhood gives you in-group identity. It gives you purpose and it gives you clarity about who your friends are and who your enemies are. So if you have any sort of in-group identity whatsoever, you will also have an accompanying sense of victimhood. You can't have in-group identity without a sense of victimhood. So Walking around with a sense of victimhood at like a two out of 10 or even a three out of 10 in intensity, right, that shouldn't be maladaptive. It's when it gets to five, six, seven, eight and above out of 10 in intensity that that victimhood then becomes maladaptive. So having some sense of victimhood, helping you to develop in-group identity and to get clarity about friends and enemies, right? That is adaptive. Right? it's not like all victimhood is maladaptive.
11: I have the ability to kind of galvanize about around this common perceived grievance, and it mm. could be that they're choosing the benefits I've just described of the identity over what they see as participating in an anxiety inducing humiliating expensive and uh rewardless mating market
15: you're saying basically basically when when someone like me that was born in 1980 as against someone that was born in the year 2000 was in a situation of not being able to have a girlfriend you just accepted that you so every every heterosexual man knows what it's like to be turned down
0: uh, for for a date by women men you know boys Teenage boys, men, you know, have dozens, if not hundreds, of examples of being knocked back by women. Uh, it's, it's humiliating because the way the world works is that the man has to be the aggressor, has to be the assertive one, has to chase women, and women get to be the deciders. So the downside of that is that pretty much every man has all these, you know, fairly vivid memories of rejection, which can then, you know, easily become warped. And so it's, it's, I think, a lot of the the reason for use of pornography by men, they get to try to undo the sting of rejection by, you know, looking at this you know, very posh woman, you know, taking her clothes off and getting humiliated. And so the man, by you know, using that kind of material, he feels like he can, you know, keep his own shame and rejection at the hands of women at bay. So the, the more brutal the, the dating wars right the, the more brutal the rejection the less solid your own sense of self so that you, you know don't deal well with rejection then you know the more likely all these dangerous
15: emotions will, will get warped you didn't have a girlfriend you couldn't talk to anybody about it you couldn't find other people to talk about it and so therefore it couldn't become a, a means of of, of creating a sense of of uh, of self and of certainty and of, of of whatever you just kept quiet about it, um and um and lived with it and now now that's not the case is that what you mean?
11: Yeah, perhaps. And uh, you know, uh, back then you didn't really have much choice to do anything with it either—keep trying on the mating market or retreat from it quietly. Now you can make a lot of noise about it on the internet, and uh, you know, it could be that uh, this particular cohort of men are incentivized to retreat from the mating.
0: So generally speaking, women seem to be a lot more in touch with their emotions than men. And whoever's more in touch with their emotions is going to be more likely to vent and to complain. And so in the the media and among academic elites, we seem to pay much more attention to female complaints because they have many more of them. Now with the internet, we're getting for the first time in, in my memory, the rise of a significant you know, amount of male complaining, right? It used to be considered unmanly to complain, but the relative anonymity of the internet allows men to start expressing their feelings, start complaining. Women have you know, purportedly said, oh, we want you to express your feelings more. Well, when you express your feelings more, you're going to express the darker feelings, the frustrated feelings, the shameful feelings, and... That's what, what's pouring out here. So you want men to express their feelings more? Well, you get that with the incel movement and men going their own way and men's rights movements, all of which have been absolutely castigated by the media as dangerous.
11: Market Because online worlds meet their kind of needs to a sufficient level and they're just saying it's not worth it to go out and try and uh, take the rejection of the mating market to get a little bit of success. You know, to be romantically successful, you have to take a good bit of rejection first, or uh, along the way, Um and it could be that in, in cells are just um, saying that's not worth it, and we're not going to bother trying. Well, so that
15: would that would imply. I mean, it's, if you think about the, if you have to, to 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 achieve anything, you have to deal normally with rejection. So if I think about when I started publishing or trying to publish articles in academic journals, I was twenty one. It took me till I was twenty two, almost twenty three. To, to, to successfully get an article published in an academic journal. And it was just rejection, 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 and often rejection in the nastiest possible way, because um, it's, it's anonymous and that encourages people to be nasty. Um, and But you have to keep trying, and, and otherwise you'll never win. You'll never get your articles published in an academic journal. And so is it, is it that kind of psychology, the psychology of the person that would give up just... What did you find about what they would like, that they would give up? Yeah, certainly. Uh,
11: So so my study for my master's dissertation was some of the first empirical uh, studies to have primary responses from self-identified incels themselves. But research is growing all the time. Um, But we managed to get 151 self-identified incels for this study. And one of the main findings we had was that incels scored significantly higher than non-incels on a new personality construct, which is called the tendency for interpersonal victimhood. Now, that is comprised of four different dimensions. Number one is the need for recognition. So this describes a preoccupation with uh, having the legitimacy of your grievance acknowledged. So if you engage with any incels online, they typically uh, really need you to know that they never stood a chance. They want you to validate um, the way they see themselves. And this is kind of in line with uh, what's called self-verification theory, that people, even if they have a very negative self-image, they seek out information in the world that uh, verifies the way they see themselves. So incels very much have a strong need for recognition. And and
15: they they, they need others to accept they are what they say they are.
11: Yes. So the worst thing you could say to an incel is...
15: like, like, Like transsexuals then, really?
11: Uh, perhaps maybe yeah it's a kind of like a to, it would be very jarring for a transsexual to to think uh oh you, you you've kind of uh, misgendered me or whatever it might be that would be quite hurtful because it, it 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 jars with their own self-perception yeah it's kind of similar um but yeah so incels are constantly going through the world seeking information the worst thing you could say to an incel is you're actually not so bad you could go out and get a girlfriend you know come on pick yourself up. It's act, they actually appreciate it more uh, paradoxically if you say yeah it must be really tough for you uh, it's really hard for short men or whatever it is um, uh, on the mating market so they need that self fascinating
4: because
15: that's that's almost like in my I don't mean to be sexist but or right, I will I mean that's like so
0: notice that uh, men get tremendous amount of grief in the media and from elites for preferring you know younger women. And men get all sorts of grief for their dating and sexual and romantic preferences. Women are rarely given grief in the media for their preferences, right? Women have a very strong preference that they be with a man who's taller than them. But uh, women's bigotry towards short guys, right? No one ever remonstrates with women for this, right? Because generally speaking, with, with woke culture, leftist culture, mainstream liberal culture, There are certain sacred groups that you're not allowed to criticize women, gays, transgendered, blacks, Jews. All right. You've got sacred groups and they're supposed to be off
15: limits from criticism. Like women, like when women, when they talk to you about their problems, they don't want you to solve the problem. They want you to listen and accept the problem and then share your problem with them. Yes, I've noticed that too. (laughs) Right, so so they're, they're they're kind of feminine in a way. Then these incels, I mean, that, that's a that's a feminine way of seeing things. I think.
11: Perhaps Is that, is yeah.
15: that, is that, is that, is that underpinned by just neuroticism, which women are hiring, and which
11: they're hiring. I think that's probably getting at it. Yeah, there may be an element of
0: that, but the most masculine male can become feminine in certain situations. Right, when you get beaten down, all right, you you become more passive, and perhaps more expressive of negative feelings and you'll you'll come across as more more feminine perhaps. So when I'm winning, right, I feel more masculine, you know, I feel stronger. I'm more outgoing. When I'm losing, I become more introverted rather than extroverted. When I'm winning, I become more extroverted than introverted. When I'm winning, I tend to be more conscientious. When I'm losing, I tend to be less conscientious. When I'm winning, I tend to be less neurotic. When I'm losing at life, I tend to become more neurotic. When I'm winning, I tend to be more agreeable. When I'm losing at life, I tend to be less agreeable. When I'm winning at life, I tend to be more open. When I'm losing at life, I tend to be more closed. So a lot of these traits which we you know, we ascribe to people, oh, he's masculine or he's kind of feminine, right, largely depends on circumstances and situations. So men who are losing, all right, They're more likely to complain, to get in touch with the negative feelings and therefore to come across as feminine. So it doesn't have to be some inherent trait of theirs. It's contingent. It depends upon circumstance.
11: Just a high neuroticism, which uh, uh, typically women score higher on than men, for for sure. Uh, But this tendency for interpersonal victimhood scale uh, that I'm describing you might recognize a lot of groups who kind of engage with this uh, the, the dimensions of this personality trait. It's very kind of popular now in, in different places. And uh, I suspect if we use this scale on lots of different groups, feminists versus non-feminists, incels versus non-incels, could have some interesting findings.
15: One of the things that I also thought was very interesting about your study was that you found that they were relatively high in sociosexuality. Mm-hmm. So, so...
0: Looking at uh, Odyssey question from odyssey is it possible to be a married incel asking for a friend yeah right most married men aren't satisfied with their sex life right most married men probably aren't having sex every week so a lot of married couples haven't had sex in years so yeah all right there's not a huge difference between having only one sexual possible sexual partner who's been refusing for months, even years, to have sex with you and no sex partners, right? A sexual partner when they have sex with you and not having a sex partner, pretty much the same thing. So that's why it helps to get meaning and pleasure in life from as many sources as possible, getting enthusiastic about life in as many ways as possible, having you know, friends and community hobbies Uh, finding ways to join with people and doing things. So you get that sense of camaraderie, human connection, right? So you're not trying to get most of your human connection needs met through sex, which is kind of what I used to do. I try to meet my frustration, my, my anger, my needs for human connection. I try to meet so much through, through my sex life. And I put too much, too many burdens on my sex life. And I crushed my sex life, my, my love life. It, uh, it It's much better, I find, to have as much you know, passion and human connection and camaraderie and, and friendship and things going on in your life that you're excited about rather than putting so much burden just on your romantic sexual partner.
15: Um, in 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 general, I think the idea with with men that want to get a girl is they have to make out to that girl that they are low in sociosexuality, sexuality that they 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 want to have a relationship, you know that that, that 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 they are K strategists that they will invest that they won't just sort of pump and dump.
0: So one thing that surprised me during my promiscuous journeys is how intensely and relatively quickly I became emotionally attached. So. I mean, she had to be very unattractive for me to have regular sex with a woman and not get emotionally attached. So just like I found myself getting emotionally attached to women simply because I was in their company on a regular basis. So women who I thought were plain, who didn't do anything for me, when I would interact with them on a daily basis, my my father had some great saying about how propinquity, like being in the same area with someone, you know, rapidly leads to romantic feelings. I was surprised how I would have sex with, with a woman who was a five or a six. And within two weeks of, you know, intense, intimate sex, I was like very emotionally attached to her. I very rarely be been, been capable of the old pump and dump. I mean, that's not been my style. I, I don't think I've ever gone to bed with, with any woman with whom I didn't have hours of conversation I don't think I've ever dated or gone to bed with any woman who didn't enjoy reading books. But I was surprised by my own vulnerability to intimate feelings. When I do intimate
15: things with someone, I develop very strong intimate feelings. Um, but what, what you're implying is that these people know, these people are exactly like that. They are basically failed chads as, as opposed to um, uh, wannabe dads.
0: No, they're not fair chads. This is rhetoric that people use, right? The words that people say don't usually reflect what they mean. People don't say what they mean. They don't mean what they say. If you're losing at the game of love and sex and romance, you're very likely to have very bitter, you know, purported pump and dump attitudes towards women, right? On the other hand, if you're winning, right, if you're happy and confident, you're more likely to be free and easy with expressing your vulnerability then have to express it in some kind of misanthropic,
15: misogynist way. They're not the, they're not the dad type. They're, they're yeah. the pale
11: chap. So we, they do appear to have a high level of sociosexual desire. Uh, we took it as implicit that their sociosexual behavior is very low, because, and we, we've kind of predicted that that discrepancy would, uh, for those incels who are high in desire, that their well-being would be worse. But it, we actually didn't find that at all. We found that just incels had very low well-being across the board. Uh, but
0: Yeah, so we're talking frequently about troubled people. Got a good discussion going on Odyssey right now. My friend is having sex all the time with his wife. He still feels like an incel. So sex must not be emotionally satisfying. Why would someone who's having regular sex feel like an involuntary celibate? Uh, Perhaps it is his imagination, he believes that there are all these people out there who are having a lot more sex than him, more more satisfying sex, more adventurous sex, more more thrilling sex, and he's got FOMO, fear fear of missing out. I'm not sure why someone having regular sex would feel like
11: an incel. But it does appear like a lot of incel rhetoric about Chad and... Kind of women riding the cock carousel and things like this. It does appear to be very sex oriented rather than relationship oriented. Now, it's probably needs to be we need to dig into it a bit further whether they're more long term or or short term mating oriented or whether they're open to both. Um, but yeah, a lot of the rhetoric does seem to be a very short sex based um, language rather than relationship based.
15: And they, but what they say? uh, I mean, with the my understanding is when we were talking about herbivore males, um, one of the things that brought that about was the economic crisis in Japan, and there's this thing where they only hire people once a year, and then the companies didn't do.
14: Yeah,
0: if you're losing at life,
15: all right. So
0: Japan is a quintessential example. If you're losing with women, you're probably losing at life. If you're winning at life, you're much less likely to be involuntary celibate. So losing tends to precipitate more losing, winning tends to precipitate more more winning. Just like one mitzvah, one good deed leads to another, you know, one sin, one aver, tends to lead to another.
9: Right.
0: right, let's... Uh... Look at uh, and recognizing that
9: we have students that have different capabilities. What is your reaction to this decision that is affecting a lot of students? This is seven schools, accounts for 25 percent of the high schools in Fairfax County, with Thomas Jefferson High School, the top performing public school in the United States, Vivek.
6: This is deeply personal to me, Sandra. I mean, my parents came to this country over 40 years ago with almost no money. The only way I was able to, in a single generation, go on to found multi-billion dollar companies to live the American dream was getting ahead on the basis of merit. I was actually one of those kids when I was in high school. And I will tell you, that made a difference to me, to our family, to get ahead in this country. And I just think part of what it means to be American is to pursue excellence unapologetically. And right now, what we see in our country and in our culture is an assault on excellence itself. And even in the school setting, just as a thought experiment, think about it. If you applied those same principles, say, on the basketball court or in the football field, we would not have sports left anymore. We should not think it is any different when you apply it to academics or in the classroom either. And if you want to lift people up and close the racial equity gap, fine. Do it by lifting the people at the bottom up not taking the kids on top and dragging them down. That's what we need to learn.
9: Really interesting. So these seven high schools in Fairfax County, they're admitting to not informing these students of this obviously very prestigious national merit recognition. Um they're now in the Virginia Attorney General's office is now investigating the matter. Obviously you have Governor Yunkin uh, on all of this. But what I thought was really interesting about his quote. Was not just, not just the mention of the maniacal focus on equal outcomes for all students at all costs, Vivek. And I think that's a really important part of what he is saying here. What do you believe is the cost to basically making, you know, this, this, this push for equity for all, um, even if it is the, at the cost of not rec- recognizing, to your point, excellence?
6: That's right. Well, there's a really cynical version of this, which is the $450,000 cost that they paid to a consultant that enforces this agenda on the schools. That's effectively the shakedown that's happening at schools across the country where people are making money off of these trends, Sandra. And by the way, if you're a teacher's union, it's a lot easier to call math racist than it is to do the hard work of actually teaching kids, including underprivileged kids, how to do math. So there's a self-interested component to this where the managerial class in the schools, Mm. including but not limited to teachers, unions, including but not limited to those diversity consultants who make a lot of money, actually make a good business model out of this. So that is one of the costs. But the deeper cost is a sacrifice of American identity itself. In fact, if you ask most young people in this country today, what does it mean to be an American in the year 2023? Most of them probably cannot give you a good answer. And the reason why is the assault on excellence is an assault on the American soul. Mm. And this country was built not on equality of results, but on equality of opportunity. And you know what? If you're going to have to hold people back, the more capable people in whatever domain, be it on the sports field or in the classroom, if you're going to hold them back, then the only way you're going to be able to do it is at all costs. And that's exactly why.
0: So South Africa's cricket team, they have affirmative action. The South African cricket team must have a certain number of black players, even if they wouldn't get there vis-a-vis standards of excellence and that's certainly hurt the performance of south africa's cricket team so you can have equity or you can have excellence but you can't have both equity and excellence at the same time they cancel each other out and let's get back to
15: this discussion of insults do that and the result was that you got this generation of people that were left out and this kind of has really messed things up in japan um but But with the um, with the incels, what they argue is that it's to do with the promiscuity of females. Now that women um, uh, aren't basically socially compelled to get married, to have sex, uh, then you just get these women that have lots and lots of of sexual relationships with a small number of very successful men. uh, And then they don't get a look in. Um, Was that Found to be accurate in your research, or was that well? Well, well, we certainly
11: found that incels compared to non incels were very, very low in socioeconomic status. So, I can give you some statistics to show you just the extent of that. So, 50 percent of the incels in our sample uh, reported to still live with a parent or carer compared to 27 percent of non incels, Uh, 17 percent of incels versus nine percent of non incels reported to be NEAT, so not in education, employment or training. Uh, 36% of incels versus 20% of non-incels in our sample uh, reported to have a high school education or lower. So very low on socioeconomic status all round, which we know there's robust literature showing that women value socioeconomic status uh, in a partner. Uh, So it could be the case that women now Uh, are not having to settle for um, men that they never had to settle for before. Now that they're earning their own money, they're kind of would rather stay single than settle for a guy. Um, But women are long term mating. I I guess
15: also one of the issues is that what what you said about education and and so on, high school, um, is that increasingly in Western countries anyway, women are more educated than men. Women, okay, their IQ might be a bit lower, but they're much higher in conscientiousness and things like that. And the result.
0: And opportunities for men to just hang out with men have been considerably shrunk because it's now considered a violation of women's rights if they can't join every male service club. So just uh, being male and and the things, you know, the competitive, uh, blunt, brutal way that that men often talk to each other, that's going to get you in trouble with HR. So bigger companies have had to you know, lower their chances of getting sued, which required the imposition of all sorts of draconian policies, which kind of militate against hiring of you know, strongly heterosexual men. Instead, more feminine men are often you know, better suited nowadays to the corporate environment. So that plays into it as
15: well. Result is they are more educated; they're more likely to have PhDs, um, and, and so at every level, then you're, you're getting these women that are being asked to effectively marry down, and they're evolved to find that repugnant. Um, they, they'd rather become lesbians or get cats. Right. Um, and, and so this would imply that it really is causing a, a, an excess of males, like in a like in a polygamous society. It's almost de facto de facto polygynous that then gets. Brought about by uh, these uh, uh, promiscuous uh, um, uh, educated women who delay, yeah. delay their
11: so, so this is what we would might describe as the incel phenomenon. Could be described as a symptom of a broader mating crisis, um, whereby you have a, a kind of a, a bigger, a growing population of highly educated but highly selective women, and not enough men to kind of uh, to meet that demand. Uh, so some media describes this as broke men are hurting American women's uh, marriage prospects uh, and things like that, which is a bit of a, uh, but it, but what it basically, uh, it's a bit of a sneering way to describe the problem because this mating crisis would kind of hurt, uh, but both um, sexes. Um, But yeah, you basically have a culturally skewed sex ratio. And what happens when you have a skewed sex ratio, if you have a minority of men that women are interested in a minority of highly educated men compared to a, a, a bigger number of uh, highly educated women those minority of men are very commitment adverse they're very reluctant to commit to long-term mating because they're kind of uh, in the minority they call the shots kind of thing uh, So, so it's a little bit of a mating crisis and we're hoping to dig into that and what's going on now what you just
0: Okay, speculation in the chat. Is this Brian Koberger, the accused murderer in Idaho? Is he Jewish? Koberger, not a Jewish name. There's no reason to believe that he's Jewish. Brian, right? Not not a Jewish name. He's named Brian Christopher Koberger. All right, Jews (laughs) never named Christopher. So B-R-Y-A-N, non-Jewish spelling. Uh, Apparently he comes from a Roman Catholic family or Christian family. There's no evidence that he's
11: Jewish. Described as women's tendency to mate uh, upwards, uh, to prefer a mate who's more educated or more wealthy than themselves. Uh, That's called hypergamy, right? And that's consistent finding in women's mate preferences. Now there is some evidence that, um, hypergamy is on the decline, that women are indeed beginning to marry men who are less educated uh, or less well-off than themselves. However, that's, in my opinion, somewhat inevitable. Rather than uh, completely staying single, many women might try and mate down, and uh, they might not feel too happy about it, but they might do that. And even the authors of that study that found the decline in hypergamy, they preface their findings that oh we can't speak to how uh, women felt about this having to make down um, and also, there's
15: how, these... su- how subtle are the measures because you can make trade-offs can't you you can you can get a a man might be a plumber and earn more than you as an academic so you yes. you're, you're making a trade-off in terms of status rather than that, simply marrying down
11: that, that could be right too. Um, but uh, it, it gets even more kind of complicated still so that decline in hypergamy, has occurred in lockstep with increases in female infidelity. Rates of infidelity for men have remained pretty stable across time, pretty high, um, but they've increased by forty percent among women in the last half century. Uh, so that's happened alongside this decline in hypergamy, that's and even and, it, women, yeah,
15: and even are, yeah, women are not happy. Then that, that they are showing they're not happy by shagging around.
11: Perhaps they're not happy or perhaps it's just easier to have an affair when you're not reliant on your partner financially. You're also working in high status positions. You're around mo- other high status men who maybe make more sense as an affair partner. Uh, lots of things going on there. Uh, increased anonymity of the Internet. And, uh, that's Let's important. focus
15: on this. So we could call this like Liz Truss syndrome.
11: Okay, you know,
15: this, right. this, this Liz Trust marries an accountant. She's being trained up to be a, get a parliamentary seat. Uh, she has a mentor who's an MP. He's of higher status than her husband. She has an affair with him. Okay, yes, yeah,
11: so I, I wasn't really aware of that with Liz Truss, but that kind of makes sense. And that uh, describes female infidelity um, uh, better than male infidelity. Male infidelity tends to happen out of opportunity. Um, you have men sitting in couples counselling rooms up and down the country and the counsellor asked them, why did you have an affair on your wife? You know, you love your wife, you love your family. Uh, why did you cheat with that hairdresser around the corner? And he will say, I, I don't know. She was just there. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean they want to leave their partner necessarily often it does. But when women have an affair, it typically means they want to what's called mate switch uh, to switch mate. They have affairs with men who have the same traits they value in a long-term partner uh, they typically fall in love with their affair partner and want to leave their current partner for them. It's kind of like an exit strategy or it can be described as monkey. You know, they, they, the
15: they, they realize their mate value and they, they get someone with higher, higher mate value.
11: Perhaps. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a sudden rise in mate value of one partner compared to the other is a big predictor of an affair. You can you can that's a, a good signal that uh, someone might consider having yeah, a favorite, man, but... man
15: rises in social status and then the women are more interested in him and, uh, and and so on. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so it's, a, I see. Um, now uh, moving back to so you, the this one thing that interests me, though, the, the psychological trait though, of um, making an identity, a sense of self out of fate, out of, um, when people say, "Oh, you know, I, I identify very strongly as being black, and black people have been oppressed," um, you, you could argue that's not personal failure, though. That's your perceived, That's the way you're deciding to represent what your group has done. But within cells, you're making an identity out of personal, fa- out of a personal failing. What are you mm-hmm. doing? Are you owning the personal failing? I mean, how does that work psychologically? Why would somebody
11: do that? Yeah, so that's kind of what I thought at the start. I was like, what would someone get out of this? But then I thought humans have a strong need to belong to kind of coalitions. So they get a sense of fraternity from it, that virtuous victimhood identity, the humorous language. Uh, So they did some research on this, uh, not our study, uh, but another study which asked incels what they get out of using incel forums. And three quarters of incels in that study said that the forums made them feel understood, feel less lonely, and gave them a sense of belonging. However, uh, half of the participants in that same study said that using the forums made them feel hopeless. So it's a bit of a mixed bag that it might be the case that for some incels, this incel identity makes things worse. Or for some, it could be good, actually, and helps their well-being, that uh, it makes them feel a little less lonely and that someone else struggles in the same way they they struggle. However, forum use in our study, our forum using incels, that was a big predictor of anxiety in our sample. Uh, so it's, it's a complex, it might be a lot of individual differences um, for which incels the incel identity is good and which it makes it worse.
15: Um, okay. And uh, what, were, there, were there any differences in things like physical health? Did you look at that?
11: We didn't look at that too much in our um, uh, uh, study we did look at mental health well-being um, and we used uh, kind of um, measures used by the NHS I can give you some of the statistics on their mental health levels of well-being if, if you're interested yeah, I know okay. that in, in other studies incels have reported very very high levels of autism um, we're looking to measure that in a future study uh, m- more specifically uh, which we're going to be launching in a few weeks Um, But in terms of their levels of well-being, so incels scored significantly higher on depression. And to measure depression, we used the PHQ-9, which is used by the NHS uh, in in the UK. And using that measure to clinically diagnose depression, 73% of incels could be clinically diagnosed as severely or moderately severely depressed compared to 33% of non-incels in our sample. In terms of anxiety... We used the GAD7, General Anxiety Disorder um, Measure, to measure anxiety, again, used by the NHS, and we found that 67% of incels could be clinically diagnosed as severely or moderately severely anxious versus 38% of the non-incels. What,
15: what's, the, what's the direction of causation, though? So I struggled with chronic
0: fatigue syndrome for over three decades, and I deliberately chose not to affiliate with any chronic fatigue syndrome support groups. On the other hand, I did join various twelve-step uh, programs, which have a component of support. I mean, in general, I think support is something that you need when, when you're dying. Right? A normal person, I don't think, needs support. You need rather to be passionate about things in, in your life: your, your your choices, your your hobbies, your your work, your education, your friends, your your community, your religious commitments. Right? If if you have passion, if you believe in things, and you go for it. I don't think you need support. So, being alone is is really really bad. So, if the easiest way for you to connect with other people is through this sense of victimhood, then like who am I to say that's
15: that's a bad thing? Certainly better than nothing. Is it that they're in cells and this makes them sad, or is it that they're they're, they're sort of sad, depressed? bitter people become incels whereas somebody else that has been through the same thing uh hasn't got a girlfriend yet and they're under 21 or something um do- doesn't uh deal with it in in what seems to be not necessarily a, a helpful way with regard to getting a girlfriend and and, and it's is- what's the what's the sort of direction is-, is there any way of teasing that out through a modeling or uh a- something like that
11: yeah, there probably is. Um, it might be a bit above my pay grade for now, but I uh, certainly should look into it. But I think uh, you definitely find that it's bi-directional, that depressed people struggle to form romantic relationships and uh, not forming romantic relationships will make you more depressed. I think it would be very much uh, a cycle of bi-directional effect, I would imagine.
15: Yeah. And so it it would just make them worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, What about the idea? Have you read any of the the research by, um, oh God, what's his name? The the, uh, Greek Menelaus Apostolu. You know Menelaus Apostolu? Yeah. And he he argues that women are in a particularly extreme evolutionary mismatch because they are adapted to be in a patriarchy. And so when they're not in a patriarchy, then they will do they will this fight back against their parents and their brothers to get what they want is a fight back against nothing. Um, And so and so they end up doing things that that are not in their interests. And I suppose you could argue that for over a lot over basically all our history, really, for a very long time, there's been an excess of, uh, of of women. Um, I mean, I had someone on the channel on Thursday who was saying to me that, well, look, the reason why we have blue eyes and white skin and and uh, uh, different hair, ginger hair or blonde hair is because there was an excess of women. And so you get runaway sexual selection. Um, and so could it be that this is a, this is an extreme mismatch for us? That it doesn't happen very often to have an excess of men like this in Europe. It's never really been the case. It's been the case in Muslim Hello, countries because I'm of I'm Coulter. Of Welcome to Guinness. my
16: Substack podcast. I am with the amazing Ryan Jerdusky, whom I'm constantly tweeting, and you should follow if you don't already. He's running the um, is it 1776 project. I'm so sorry.
10: Yeah, yeah, that's
16: it. <laughs> I thought so, but you know, there are other dates. Sometimes they do the constitutional day. Anyway, the, it's the, the most important project in the country right now because it's about the school boards. Um, finally, we have someone doing something that's useful. We were trying to, and my friends and I, you'll like this, Ryan, we're um, going through all oh, the grifters on the conservative movement. You had the grifters on the Tea Party, the grifters with Trump. You had, obviously, Matt Schlapp in the nose, grifter on CPAC. And it's really hard to come up with people who are not grifters on the conservative movement. Obviously, I think I am one. You clearly are one. I think a lot of John Binder, a lot of people at Breitbart. Um, but it's basically, there. there is something that uh, called the swamp. And pretty much yeah. everybody in Washington is not worth a damn.
10: Well, because they like to lose and they know the model for making <laughs> money by losing. They don't know the model for making <laughs> money by winning yet, but they know the model for making money by losing. And, uh, you know, it's very, very frustrating, but I like the wins. I mean, so we got elected some guy named Ryan Walters, who's the superintendent for Oklahoma. You've met him. I, met, I actually met him with you when you gave a speech in Oklahoma. He came to your speech. Oh, yeah. He won. And on his first day, he went through like libs of TikTok or whatever about all the teachers who were doing CRT inside Oklahoma classrooms and fired them all. Like,
16: wow
10: it was like, uh, when they, and they admitted, they were in a project's very cross video. They were somewhere and they admitted to that they were breaking the Oklahoma law against CRT, and first day on the job, immediately fired them. Like, that's the kind of thing that we need. It's not going to be life changing. Not every politician is going to be Rudy Giuliani cleaning up New York, but you don't need everyone to. You just need kind of people to, you know, do the job and see the wins and build the momentum on it. And you get and not take credit for every little thing that they yes. do, and you will have a very successful state, city, country, wherever.
16: Yes. And um, I don't know what you think about this. I'm about to find out. Um, Maybe not spend quite so much time investigating Hunter Biden's laptop because that will get you on Fox News and actually make Democrats vote against good laws.
10: Yeah, like that's what I mean, The that's what I'm hoping this Republican Congress does in the first couple of weeks. They did that. I mean, the abortion thing about Born Alive, we passed the Born Alive bill in 2002. Every Democrat voted for it in 2002. So I don't really understand why we're doing this whole entire vote thing now. I think it's already the law. Bush made it the law. Um, Schumer supported it, Biden supported it, whatever. Um, but on immigration, they should be taking every major vote. On some spending stuff, they should make every, the China thing. The first bill they did, they did the China thing where really they're investigating China and something like 180 Democrats joined in on it because only the like real looney tunes who like yes. you know, have not seen waters of the bunch were like no china's our friend but besides that <laughs> it, it, besides that you are making them held accountable on on multiple different fronts and i say you know make them take every bad vote they are possibly to take it'll be much easier in 2024 branding them as extreme and i am surprised that the joe biden document thing has gotten more
16: messy. yes i wanted to ask you about that it seems to me uh, maybe you have a third possibility. There are three possibilities or two possibilities, I think. One is <laughs> this is the Democratic Party um, putting the shiv in Biden. They've decided you are too old. But I don't know. Then they're stuck with Kamala or Buttigieg yeah. or Hakeem Jeffrey. So I'm not believing, number one, that it's the shiv yet. I think the number two is they're just trying to act, you know, oh, so punctilious because we take classified information so serious. And they know this is nothing compared. I mean, I don't think either of the cases are Trump or Biden, are horrible crimes against man and and God. Yet and still, what, what Trump did is obviously more criminal. Um, so they'll clear Biden, and, and they get to act like they're not being hypocritical.
10: Yeah, but they have the special prosecutor. That's but they serious. know he's going to clear Biden. I just think that it's it's a bad look for the quote unquote adults in the room to have a prosecutor in his garage, and also the vice president doesn't have the same rights the president does when it comes to classified information. It makes does it make sense to me that Trump wanted documents to hold on his trophies and he shoved in a box in Mar-a-Lago? A hundred percent. Does it make sense to me that Joe Biden, the drunk guy in the White House, shoved a bunch of documents and put them in a garage and didn't look at them again for fifteen years? Yeah, absolutely. I believe both scenarios where no one no malice was intended. I, agree. I, I you know, I, I easily believe people do dumb things all the time, and you know, look at the two personalities we're working with. This isn't, you know, Aristotle and Plato arguing. This is just Biden and Trump, you know, handling classified <laughs> information. So I, um, I just, I don't know what the outcome of it is. I don't think it's the shift thing, especially because people would have just had the worst week in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Kamala Harris is. Like the invisible vice president, we don't even see her anymore. Um, I think they just were like, "Hey, this will be better for him. Approval ratings go up when she's out of the picture." And I mean, i have Gavin Newsom, who looks like you know the killer from American Psycho. Like, so I just <laughs> I, I don't see how they, he looks like Patrick Bateman. I mean, I just don't. I just don't know. They don't have like a superstar up their sleeve that they're going to pull out right now, and we're all going to be like, "Oh no, this is what our worst nightmare." Is I don't. I don't know. Right. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what's
16: going on, but something. something. Well, if the um, special counsel clears Biden, then my option number two will have been proved correct. They're all acting like, well, classified documents. And I don't think classified documents really are that serious, as you say. I think the stuff gets taken inadvertently. I think things are way overclassified. I think the laws are way too strict and you can pretty much get anyone. But they want to act like, no, we think oh, we're very serious about this. And then Biden gets cleared.
10: Well, my favorite was on The View, where they were like, clearly, Republicans were going into his garage and stuffing documents in it. I'm like, people are so crazy. Like, I don't I
16: have know. i watching The View enough. <laughs> oh, it
10: is. Oh, it is often. I mean, I don't watch The View, but I see the clips on, on Twitter. Um, and that was, Joy Behar was like, just when we were going to get Trump, this happens now. And I'm like, you people are so, need to, like, touch grass For a little while, go and touch grass.
0: So I'm reading a book that's highly praised. It's called G-Man J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. And a great, great read, right? And uh, talks about uh, J. Edgar Hoover taking over the FBI in 1920s and de- is determined to try to make it more professional and more you know, expert and more gentlemanly. Well, apparently his ideas of expertise and gentlemanliness rested on The nativist assumptions that produced the Immigration Act of 1924, which codified preferences for the Protestants of Western Europe over the Catholics and Jews of Eastern Europe and effectively excluded African and Asian immigrants altogether. Well, at the time of the Revolutionary War, at the end of the 18th century, America was 85% Anglo. Was America really suffering because it was 85% Anglo? Is that such a, a terrible thing? Why is diversity a good thing? diversity means that you have less and less in common with your fellow citizens. I mean, It seems to me that having more and more in common with your fellow citizens is is a good thing. So apparently Edgar Hoover's appointment to run the FBI brought out prejudices. The first time a Protestant and a member of the Masonic fraternity has been appointed director of the Bureau of Investigation, William Burns, an ardent Roman Catholic, preceded Mr. Hoover for Mr. Burns, another Romanist, W.J. Flynn, held the office well. In America anyway, uh, heavily Roman Catholic cities tended much more towards corruption. The assumption was there in the physical comparison, fat versus slim, red hair versus brown, as well as in discussions of Hoover's personal habits. So Burns, the Catholic, chomped on cigars reveled in the New York limelight. Hoover enjoyed playing golf and he was not buried under paperwork. So when the press praised J. Edgar Hoover's appointment, the implication was clear, reforming the Bureau meant replacing its urban Catholic leadership with superior Protestant men. Well, the people who founded the United States were overwhelmingly from Protestantism. They weren't overwhelmingly from Catholicism. Efficiency, modesty, merit, and golf These were the bywords of Hoover's more refined and more Protestant Bureau. Hoover's transformation it was not simply a flexing of bureaucratic power. It was also a cultural project. Yeah, if you have any kind of transformation, it's also going to be a cultural product shaped by conservative principles about race and religion, gender, and social hierarchy. Before Hoover's appointment, the FBI regularly hired black agents. Hoover put an end to that. He placed black men in servant roles such as chauffeur and greeter. Jewish employees fared better, though they came in for extra scrutiny. So Hoover sought to enforce the vision of white Christian masculinity parted to him through the institutions of his youth. Look, every form of life tries to create an environment that is best suited for its thriving. Birds do it. Bees do it. Bugs do it. Human beings also do it. It's uh, not necessarily something that's uh, particularly heinous or frightening
2: home while these classified documents were sitting in the garage. Uh, Last night, he formally asked the White House to release visitor logs, but the White House tells Fox today that they don't keep track of that kind of thing because they say the president's personal residence is personal. And now that is fueling another layer of questions in planned GOP probes.
1: And I think it's particularly concerning to the American people, considering that Hunter Biden
6: has all these unsavory relationships with foreign entities and profited over those relationships. And he had access to this home, was renting the home and living in the home, according to his records. The White House is hitting back. Not only did they take a, t- a
10: swipe. At-
0: OK, let's get back to Ann Porter here speaking with Ryan Kodoski.
10: Like, just hang out with an old person, have a glass of wine, and relax for a moment.
16: So. Uh, okay, we also wanted to talk about this week, I was interested that you were so interested and sad about it, and I think there's a lot to say, um, about Lisa Marie Presley dying.
10: Yeah, I just think that this is a woman who, uh, born the sole child to the most famous man American. Okay, I don't care about that. I don't want people to
16: know who you are. Um, it's, it's like Aladdin's three wishes, um, especially child stars, where um, she wasn't a child star, but she was
10: born famous. Um uh, I was just finished reading a book called uh, "I'm Glad My Mom Died" by Jenna. Something she's a child. I actor. saw
16: that title. What on earth?
10: She was a child. It's a great book. It's not a good book. It's a great book. I was like, it's all a right, terrible let's title. Well, her mother made her bulimic, made her anorexic, made her a child. Who actress. is this?
16: Wait, back up. Who who is she? Oh, she it was, was. This is a uh, okay. Got it. It was. Child another... Becoming a star through her daughter.
10: Right, exactly. Her mother wanted to be a star, couldn't be a star, so she made her daughter a star. She was on a TV show on Nickelodeon called, uh, her name is Jeanette McCurdy. Um, she was on a TV show on Nickelodeon. I never saw the show. I didn't know who she was until the book came out. So I listened to the book and it's what you say about like being, she didn't want to do it, but her mother said, this will make sure the family's taken care of, but she'll make money and then- you.
16: Yes, and that's why, as weird as it seems, she was a very lovely, beautiful girl.
10: And I know of mm-hmm. the ability to relate to him the way that I know I can. not I can only imagine if I was on a movie set or a TV show and sitting in front of their house or going to their kid's school they're never gonna have to play cut short because esl classes have to be expanded you know they're never gonna have to li- that's like when mark cuban did you see this on twitter like last week mark cuban was like my children are doing are not doing this whatever and it just shows how you know how generation z is like so normal and i was and they were like uh, your children are not normal people's children like, <laughs> on cell phones or something weird like that they were like what are you talking about like don't insert your billionaire children as the norm um actually, they're normal. i don't think that they have a norm so they'll never have a normal integration with migrants, I mean, literally, New York City is buckling because Colorado right. is sending us migrants. Yes, it's yes. Buckling at the seams. We can't handle the. I mean, and it, it, it is daunting. We can't handle this. How does Star County, Texas, right, El Paso, handle this every day, like every yes. single day? And it's just there's no end in sight. Um, what is he That's do why with- God
16: bless Ron DeSantis. I mean, that Martha's Vineyard political stunt, that was the greatest political stunt of my lifetime. Man, <laughs> did that expose them.
10: Exactly yeah. what you're talking about. What, what was the headline that CNN ran as they were deporting them? Like, their diversity gave us... like.
16: Remember all those mainstream
0: media articles about Ron DeSantis sending illegal migrants to Martha's Vineyard? And the overwhelming slant was, you know, what a terrible thing that Ron DeSantis did. But it forced the immigration issue back into the news. Which is good
10: for Republicans. Enriched us. That was it. Enriched us.
16: Yes, they enriched us. Uh, they Get the hell us. out of here. <laughs>
10: <laughs> As they're being deported. Um, I, <laughs> I think that Republicans are going to start seeing immigration bills start probably next week or the week after. We'll start seeing the first few of them. There's only one Republican who said no so far, and that's Tony Gonzalez, who is. Um, a horrendous pick by Donald Trump, who was the not conservative candidate. A guy named Raúl Reyes was the conservative candidate. Oh yeah, yeah go- I saw
16: you tweeting about that. Yeah, yeah, Raúl Reyes. The whole old-
10: was backing him. Ted Cruz was backing him. Chip Roy was backing him. And then this, uh, you know, Chamber of Commerce guy was running and gets the Trump endorsement and wins by like thirty votes out of like forty-five thousand cast. And now he's the first one to say the border, the border bill coming out of the Texas Republicans is xenophobic. Like, really, the first person has to. This. And he's on the border; his district is literally the border. So um, he won
16: because of Donald Trump. Let's stress he, that point again. <laughs>
10: um, I think. Well, I think that I think McCarthy, with what happened, I know you were on vacation, so you weren't witnessing the uh, ever-insane uh, George Santos story and speakership fight. But the um, the um, I think that I think McCarthy's gave away so much to the conservatives. I don't think he can now restrain anything. I think basically. Good. No, it is good. I think that they're going to have them. I think they're going to give them every kind of major vote they want. And we're going to wait until the budget bill comes along. There was a political story that Biden's already trying to get meetings with the moderates to see if they can pass like a Democrat continuing resolution when it comes down to the budget. Because that's when the fight's going to actually happen is over the budget. Mm -hmm. over the budget fights is when Republicans, even when they control only the House, can actually make huge wins. As we saw in the Obama years, we got sequestration, massive spending cuts under uh, Clinton. We got the welfare reform. Obviously, it was a long time ago, but we did get something major out of that. There are things that can happen during those budget fights. I just, uh, so I think that's when it's going to happen. And listen, make every Democrat hold accountable for their insane votes. They'll have to be running for the Senate
16: soon. Yes, in two years. Look, either 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 the bill will be so popular, Democrats will be forced to vote for it, and you can actually get some legislation passed. Or they'll vote against it, and you run against them on it. But that's all—I mean, and, and you do need to have hearings to pass on this legislation. I'm not saying, you know, just rush down to the floor and hold the votes on, on the border, on what Mayorkas has been doing. Um, but have these hearings specifically related to legislation and not another— I mean, not that they are equivalent. The Russia thing was just completely pulled out of Hillary Clinton's butt. But um, yeah, what the FBI did with Twitter is very bad. Uh, but I just don't want the whole the whole focus on this. I mean, that actually, the social media would be good. I just don't want to focus on Hunter right. Biden's We can't have more endless investigations. Get something done, Republicans.
10: The Jim Jordan show of oh Benghazi. It has to be. There's got to be a. There has to be a resolution. We're going. We're doing this on on the FBI because we want to do X. We're doing this on the border because we want to do Y. Right. China because we want to do Z. Like, there is something that is going to be concluded with all these investigations. And maybe we don't even know the conclusion yet. I guess maybe when we find more information out, we can draw a conclusion. But the overarching thing is we need a secure border and we need lower levels of immigration. We need, uh, you know, the the government not to be involved in censoring private citizens as they have a political position. thought that was, you know, McCarthyism. Um, And and, uh, we need to reinstate industries in America. Now, how we get there or what's been going on in the middle, maybe we don't know those answers yet, but like, That blueprint, maybe from those investigations, I think is the most important part. Um, But yeah, you're right. It can't be. We can't launch Jim Jordan, another Jim Jordan, who... People like Jim Jordan. He's not. The, he's not as great as what people think he is. And um, he is a long. He was. He is a creation of television hits on one specific show in particular. Who had him on day in and day out of Benghazi, and he became this conservative celebrity. And meanwhile, he votes horrendously on big tech, horrendously on social media, horrendously on all those things. Big donors. Really,
16: I didn't know. He, I'm not surprised. So he votes bad, badly. Oh, I'm, I'm looking tech. up. Guess he was on TV right now? Anyway.
10: <laughs> <laughs> big tech <is> terrible. Wow. <laughs> um,
16: he votes badly on big tech.
10: Hardly on big tech horribly on big tech.
16: Why is that? Do these Republicans, uh, there are two things I don't understand why Republicans don't go after. One, I've been harassing them about forever, and that is the universities. And I mean, it would be so much fun. The universities are 100% against the Republican Party. They are doing horrible things, not only, you know, just at large generally, they're doing horrible things to their students. The inflation rate for tuition has gone up more than anything else on earth, like 7,000% compared to the 1970s. Has, has education gotten better? No, it's gotten worse. Um, they should be having tobacco-style hearings, you know, and they brought in all the CEOs of tobacco companies and got them on the rest. Are, are cigarettes addictive? I want the deans of, dude, day after day, 20, 30 colleges, to tell us how many deans there are and tell us their salaries and what they do. Because these colleges have hundreds of diversity deans making hundreds of thousands of dollars, and presidents of colleges making millions of dollars, while tuition's going through the roof. Um, it would be a lot of fun. Don't you want to fund Republicans? And you're going against the enemies, but they won't do it. So I'm wondering, are they still hoping their kids are going to get into Harvard? Are they still hoping their kids will work for Google? What is holding
10: them back, Ryan Jurduski? Uh, I think with Jordan, I think it's the donations. But I agree with you on the universities. And I think, like, I just think Republicans really are closer to where we want them to be now than they have been in a very, very long. With the exceptions of the people who have been there for way too long, who want a bust of Zelensky in the in the Capitol, <laughs> um, which is what one congressman introduced a bill of this week. But, um, but those few exceptions, I think that they're, I would not be like a JD Vance, one thousand percent for bringing in, um, you know, the university presidents. And I'm sure, and I think that they're getting a lot closer towards that. Look what Ron DeSantis must do that one university in Florida where I he know. <laughs> Rufo in charge, or like you know, I, I just. think that they're getting much, much closer. I'll say from the 1776 Project pack. where we did, we did a lot with DeSantis's campaign. We flipped you know, you know, over a dozen or 14 counties, major counties in Florida. Um, so I'm trying to meet with these, uh, the, the, the campaigns of the sitting governors, the ones who are there right now, because they keep the campaign offices kind of going while they're in office, and say, um, do you want to be as popular as Ron DeSantis? Like, we can make this happen. <laughs> like, we want to do school board elections with you, we'll make this happen for you. Please, like, get involved, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders or Glenn Youngkin or, uh, you know... The governor of Oklahoma is par- par- partly responsible for Ryan uh, Ryan Walters he, or, you know, wherever the case may be. Like, let's work with them and let's get this going because there's no excuse. And I think that I mean, look at the like, last year, the Wyoming Republican Party, Wyoming, Wyoming's legislature is basically only Republicans. I think out of like 80 people, there's three Democrats. <laughs> the legislature, a
16: wonderful state.
10: <laughs> yeah, there's no Democrats, I think, to be found in Wyoming. But... Um, uh, it's like South Dakota. There's a handful. There's literally none. So Wyoming legislature passed a bill and the governor vetoed it, but it got really close to banning women's studies programs um, in all the public universities. If you get a degree to be a DEI officer, you're only going to do two things, which is go to the universities or go to the private sector and hunt to make sure that they can't hire white men anymore. Like that's literally yes. your only job. And to find a random. So DEI stands for diversity, equity, inclusion, statue that no one's looked at in the last hundred years do knocking jobs you have as a DEI officer start Stop. abolishing degrees in the DEI professions just say sorry we're not going to fund this anymore go I'd rather get a degree in basket weaving than getting a degree in DEI it's just yes, people want to buy baskets I, but, <laughs> but I mean at least you're probably just a harmless hippie who just you know okay you're not going to be trying to destroy every portion of the country um, yeah I think that that is I think that that assertiveness is really important and i think the fight over dei and ridding dei officers of at least of public universities and at least of government offices is the forefront fight that you can possibly have if you're not in congress and you can't fight over immigration you can't fight over and you're in the mm-hmm. legislature of north dakota guess what they have dei officers there or west virginia or these smaller states you can still do something immense look at ESG and getting rid of blackrock when west virginia started that kick Florida followed, Louisiana followed, Texas followed. They lost billions, and they changed their ESG policy afterwards.
16: Like, oh. <laughs> And wait, what is is? I've, I've read about this in the Times. Even the New York Times says the whole ESG thing is a scam, and they're actually investing in um, you
10: know, like petroleum companies. But anyway, what, is, what does it stand for? Environmental. I don't know what the stands for. It's basically they like don't invest in any companies that are going to use gas. It does bulbs.
16: bad things. Does but bad according to the New York Times reports. <laughs> <laughs> It's a it's a total it's a total scam. Kind of makes me happy that the grifters aren't only on the conservative side; they're also on the <laughs> liberal side. Um, but but they were giving examples of it. and You just buy your way into getting like the ESG Good Housekeeping Seal of Approval. But it was all kinds of companies that ought to be the exact opposite of what ESG stands. What does the S stand for?
10: Um, I can look it up. I have no idea what it. I mean, this is how this is how little I care on ESG. But i I know
16: I know I know.
10: I'm, I'm impressed with Republicans being able to actually fight against it and actually make headway and get major corporations to change practices something that we never yes, see the ever, way that this president is environmental, being covered? social and corporate
7: governance that-
14: oh absolutely and for good reason i mean think about it uh we had we 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 had uh the first group of documents were discovered before the midterm and they yeah. the, and they sat on it uh they didn't come out and say oh we found these they waited until months afterwards the white house has mishandled this virtually every step of the way and I think it is a representative of two things. I would think it is representative of their recognition that the president is vulnerable on this issue, yeah. that it removes. It puts him on, like it or not, whether it's fair or not, it puts him on an equal standing with Donald Trump and his problems with classified documents. And second of all, it shows how inept this group really is. The Democrats, I've felt for more than a year that the Democrats are not going to nominate an 82-year-old who's already uh, having difficulty in the job. And this simply shows he's got more difficulties than we've been watching over the last year.
0: Yeah, I think Democrats are going to use this as an
10: excuse to get rid of it and prevent Biden from running for a second term. It?
16: Social. Okay, thank you. Thank yeah.
10: you. yeah, So, um, but we're we're making corporations actually follow more of our cultural beliefs than vice versa for the first time ever. Um, and I think that's really important. I think that's super valid, and I think that that is fighting fighting the DEI movement is more important now than I think almost anything else is, especially in a private sector capacity and in local state government.
16: Well, I agree with you, and I I, I should and I will have this argument with Mickey Kaus, um but he 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 sneakily maneuvered me into taking a position that's kind of a libertarian position that I'm totally taking back on my next podcast with him. We were talking about that. it's exactly what you're talking about right now. We were talking about. Um, Ron, the great Governor Ron DeSantis' Anti-Woke Act. And he said that he agreed with Sununu's criticism of it, that you should leave private companies alone. And if they want to have, you know, hire useless D.I.E. administrators, or fi- well, they'll, they'll just go out of business. They'll be in competition with another company. And I, the truth of the matter is, I just didn't think, I thought the law was only applying to either the government or anyone the government was doing business with. He sent me an email after the podcast saying, no, 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 it's any private company. This is an employment discrimination um, rule: If you were made to feel uncomfortable because of your race in the state of Florida, this is this this is you're not allowed to do this. Um, and I thought, no, I am just being an idiot libertarian. Where no, there's competition. You can go get another job. But if we're the only ones who say that, there are so many rules for what you can and can't do when a, you are a private company hiring a private employee. Can't ask, you know, a heavy set woman are you pregnant? Are we about to lose you for six months? You have to give them all of this parental leave. The things you can do and say, and if we're the only ones who say, nope, we're not going to protect our people because we say there's there's competition. You can go to the next job. It's just a ratchet effect. White men, mostly heterosexual white American men just lose, lose, lose. And there is no state, no law to protect them.
10: That's a great point about the pregnant women thing. I hadn't thought of it like that. But also, if you have two sides, one that says, leave me alone, and the other that says, you will live under my rule, the one thing will <laughs> always win. They will always win. Yes. The all the time. So yes. it's not like this is born out of uh, you know allowing uh, Black children in public schools. This is not born out of some equality issue. This is literally the opposite of that. And um, it's preposterous. Go talk to somebody from a mage I have a lot of, a lot of people who have been like high, higher dollar donors for my PACs or whatever, are a lot of them are former liberals. And when I always say to them, what like made you change? I, I more than, more than a handful of times I've heard them say, well, I have a white son and, yes. you know, and they're wealthy and they're like, well, his, you know, he, they, they canceled his fencing team because it wasn't diverse enough. And they, mm-hmm. you know, like he wouldn't be able to, they won't hire new people in that corporation. Remember white and the White Lotus, that was happened last season. The one mother was like, well, you know, feel bad for him. He won't get hired if he's white, if he's a white male, because we don't do that hiring. I could tell you from a lot of people who are higher up in private corporations that it is almost a tokenism to sit there and say, okay, you can hire one white male, but make sure it's not. Because yes. we don't want to seem like we're that kind of people, that kind of place. So it does yes. happen. Literally everywhere. And then they're told to sit there and, you know, become a, muni- a eunuch, basically, and sit there and, and, and like, tell how horrible they, they are and how horrible everything about them is and completely be depressed. I'm sorry, but that is – no, whatever that is, if this is not, like, libertarianism or small government conservative or whatever that the throwback to Barry Goldwater we're supposed to be on the side of, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. care. Like this is not right. And I've never had to sit in one of these classes, but if I did, I would burn the building down. I would lose my (laughs) I would never, I could never work for anyone besides myself because I would never tolerate it. And my my employees, I say, just don't do anything stupid. That's my big talk to them is like, just don't. And, and with so many of these DEI officers, One, if your job is to find racism and sexism and your job is to find it, you better find it. But in so many of these times where you have the guy or the woman or whoever making a comment or saying things, that's usually a singular problem. And those problem cases can be taken care of without having to, let's have a conversation on, you know.
0: Yeah, let's have a conversation, guys. Okay, let's not have a conversation. That's it. Signing off January 17 right now here in Sydney, 7.20 a.m.